KSTP, St. Paul, Minneapolis. Desert in the great American Southwest, I bid you all good evening, good morning across this great land from way west, the Hawaiian and Tahitian Island chains, across flyover country to the Caribbean and the U.S. Virgin Islands, south into South America, north to the pole, worldwide on the internet. This is Coast to Coast AM. Good morning, everybody. I'm Art Bell. Tonight, Richard C. Hoagland. Engstrom Science Award winner, advisor to NASA, advisor at one time to science, or that is, let me try that all over again. One time advisor to NASA, science advisor to Walter Cronkite, CBS's Walter Cronkite, and he will be with us momentarily. All kinds of things to discuss with Richard Hoagland. It's been a while since he's been on the radio. We'll ask him what he's been doing. Listen to me. If you own stocks, mutual funds, bonds, listen. A lot of you probably begun to notice, I sure have, the stock market has finally begun to come down. The reason is simple at the moment. Alan Greenspan, chairman of the Fed, said the market's too high and that he will, if necessary, and this gets the uh, attention of traders, raise interest rates to bring it down. And usually his words, something like irrational exuberance, do the job. Many wise people have already begun to sell stocks and mutual funds in anticipation of this action by the Fed. The Federal Reserve controls our supply of money interest rates and now has even assumed control of our stock market. Many people don't know that the Fed is not even part of our government. It's privately owned. And it refuses to be audited by our elected officials. Now, wouldn't it be cool if you got something in the, in the, uh, in the mail from the IRS notifying you of an audit and you could send a simple little letter back saying, sorry, I refuse. Same thing. Call for a free report on the Federal Reserve and find out how you can protect your hard-earned savings. This read is a must. It's free. And there's no obligation. And if you don't call, well, I don't know about you. The number is 1-800-359-4278. One eight hundred three five nine four two five five. Do you know how many people want a cell phone but can't get one? Up till now, twenty to thirty percent of the whole market—that's twenty million people—don't have the personal credit to own a cell phone. It's an untapped multi-billion-dollar market. But now, thanks to a new software technology, there's a revolution in cell phones on the way, and you can own a piece of it. Prepaid cell phones allow people with limited credit to have cell phones without paying huge upfront security fees. Now, thanks to Wireless Communications of America, it's possible to reap huge potential profits from a retail business that taps into this giant new market. Of course, there is some important investment decision-making 
on your part. Some pre-qualifying requiring a minimum participation of $8,400. But you can evaluate the risk and the rewards for yourself by getting their free investment kit and video cassette, outlining the cellular and prepaid cellular opportunities that are just waiting for you. The real potential for income and growth. Call for the free material at 1-800-444-1050. That's 1-800-444-1050. Find out how it can be part of your IRA or retirement account. It's opportunity knocking again. 1-800-444-1050. Well, all right. Uh, one little note before we begin, and that is tomorrow night. As you know, Malachi Martin, or you may not know, uh, was called out of town, an emergency kind of trip, so he is not going to be with us this week, but will next week. We'll let you know when. Tomorrow night, however, for at least a couple of hours, we are going to speak with, um, with Al Bielik, the Philadelphia Experiment Al Bielik. You might want to pass the word. Now... All the way across the country, where it's late, and Richard Hoagland um, is awake. Here he is. Richard, hi. Good morning, Art. It has been a while. It's been a little while. Mm -hmm. There have been interesting things going on. Yeah, a lot of floodwaters have gone onto the bridge. Oh, I see you've been watching my friend John Holloman standing in the Ohio River Valley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, northwest part of the country, too. It's been bad. Um, our president is on his way to Helsinki, rocked with pain, wheelchair-bound, to meet a spry, jumping-up-and-down Boris Yeltsin. Who's looking about 30 years younger. That's right. We lost about 50 pounds. It's I amazing what a good bypass operation will do for you. Boy, oh, boy. boy. Um, I'm not sure where to begin tonight, because we have a lot of ground to cover and a lot of new things and some important connections and threads to draw together. Can I, ask, can I ask you about a couple of small, no, sure, relatively small things? Yeah. Maybe it's not, not so small. I'm getting um, inside source information that I'm not sure what to make of, Richard, about the state of the Mir space station. Um, and, so, you know, there, some people say, no problem, everything's okay. I have other sources, Richard, that are saying... Hey, these guys are about to asphyxiate up there. Well, I, they're not about to asphyxiate, but the station is old. It's been up there for, you know, 15, 20 years. It's been, parts have been replaced. The Progress rockets carry replacement parts up. When the crews go up, they carry replacement parts. But it's it's basically in need of repair in the Soviet Union, now Russia, has been working a space program on a decreasing financial base mm -hmm. because of the collapse of the Soviet Empire. And there are a lot of people on the ground who literally are not getting paychecks on a regular basis so that their space program can, can continue. So, you know, we are seeing a very remarkable uh, cultural phenomenon, which is a former superpower attempting to maintain a um a code co correspondence with us who have a lot more money than they do, a lot more discretionary income, in an era when there is a radical reapportioning of resources in the former Soviet Union. So at one level I'm not surprised they've had problems. What is intriguing is the role that Mir is playing in the larger 
um, discussion and larger uh, mystery and puzzle that we are attempting to figure out. All right, but I heard that the oxygen generators, whatever they are... Okay, there are three sources of oxygen on Mir. There is the electrolysis system, which basically takes solar power from the sun and those flat panels. If you've ever seen the, the TV shots, the spectacular TV shots from the shuttle now uh, of Mir, it looks like a huge multi paneled windmill in space, except it isn't rotating. It's held in an attitude control mode. But it's got these very long, narrow, slat-like panels, which are covered with solar cells. Those solar cells convert sunlight into electricity. And the electricity goes into batteries on board, and through a power, you know, a, a generation system or a power modulation system, power transfer system. And part of that Electricity is used to basically um, uh, break water apart and to store uh, energy in, a, in, a, in, in hydrogen and oxygen. And the oxygen, part of that oxygen is, is breathed. It's kind of like a reverse fuel cell. Sure. Those systems, they had two systems on board. Both have broken down, all right? Okay. Because they're old and they're aging and the replacement parts have not been coming up. In fact, I understand uh, from a couple of the memos that you sent over tonight, confer confirmation that we, the United States, as part of our relationship with Russia, are quietly trying to manufacture replacement parts for one of these old oxygen generators, which is an electrolysis generator. That's how bad the economy and the infrastructure is in the former Soviet Union. All right? Um, that's one system. The secondary system has to do with basically a, a lithium canister system, which you, you burn lithium and, and, and in, a, in a kind of a hydride, and you release uh, an oxygen compound, which you then breathe. Okay. It is a thermal system. It creates quite a bit of heat, and it was one of those systems, which was a backup system that caught fire you know, a couple weeks ago, and cause those pictures to appear on CNN over and over and over again. Well, right? now, uh, the fire, uh, I have been told, is more or was more extensive and or damaging than they have told us. That is possible, but I don't think it's likely, and I'll tell you why. Unlike the fire, which, you know, uh, killed Grissom, Chafee, and... Uh, uh, Oh, my mind is going tonight. Right, our astronauts. The three astronauts in the Apollo 1 fire in 1967 on right. the pad, which was sitting on the ground, pressurized to over 16 pounds per square inch, on Earth under one gravity, where fire would race through a spacecraft, primarily because of the overpressurization and because of a phenomenon called convection, which happens when you have gravity. Sure. If you if you do combustible experiments in orbit, which we have been doing now for many years on the shuttle, in these little closed glove boxes, if you if you light a, a match or a candle in orbit, because there is no gravity, the the waste products of the rapid oxidation, which is what a fire is, mm -hmm. will produce carbon dioxide and other byproducts from the oxidation process from the flame. Right. But because there's no gravity, there's no convection, and those waste products can't move out of the way. So the flame 
smothers itself. Oh, that's interesting. It doesn't get new oxygen. So a fire in space is incredibly less catastrophic and frightful and dangerous than a fire on the ground. Very interesting. So I, I, I really doubt that there was a fire in the sense that you and I would, or the audience would think of it. What happened was there was a local thermal overheating. There may have been momentary combustion, which put itself out. But because a spacecraft is such a limited environment, any, you know, fire or any combustion produces nasty byproducts that you don't want to breathe. Which is where they had a they problem, right? Wearing I guess. those masks. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand two guys. And, and it could have easily been contained because it basically would have snuffed itself out within a few seconds. Mm -hmm. but, but the with... damage to the equipment is the profound problem. And with, that, with scrubber you problems... you can't run out to get a spare. Yeah, and with scrubber problems, I would assume that it takes a while to get the nasty byproducts out of what air you've got. Well, what you have is electricity which runs fans. The fans move the air mechanically past other scrubbers, you know, like it, like uh, 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 charcoal uh, filters. And But, but yes, in a, in, a, in a closed environment of a spaceship, of a space station, which is what Mir is, a fire produces nasty byproducts. I mean, what is the primary cause of fatality in airplane crashes where people survive the shock of the crash? Toxic it's smoke, smoke. Asphyxiation. Yeah. It's the inhalation of incredible numbers of toxic byproducts produced yep. by flame on plastics and rayons and all that. Now, even though spacecraft have been redesigned since the fire on, on uh, Apollo 1, so that it's primarily, and this goes for the Soviet program as well as our program, you have fire-resistant or fire-retardant or fire-impervious uh, materials like beta cloth, which is fiberglass. You still have a certain amount of material which, if it gets hot, it will outgas. It will release products that you don't want to breathe and that can probably make you very ill or, at worst, could kill you in a confined space. And so that would be the primary immediate danger. The longer-term danger is that if this secondary system, remember the primary system was the electrolysis system, that was out. They were on the secondary system, that had a problem, and that's out. So they're, they're down to a limited number of those canisters, and obviously they're looking at them warily because if one overheated, maybe the others could overheat. Sure. The third system, they got redundancy up the kazoo here, but the third system is basically you got a bunch of tanks and valves and you crack the valves and you release compressed oxygen into the environment. Obviously, if you're down to that, you've got X number of days until you run out of tanks. And again, you can't go to the corner drugstore or the corner hardware supply and get more. It's 200 miles up and a progress rocket or a shuttle trip to take up replacement parts and our oxygen. So the bottom line is that Mir is in trouble because of money and age I don't think the astronauts or the cosmonauts, we have one astronaut up there right now, um, is, is in immediate danger, but I think the concept of cooperation with the Soviet Union is obviously in trouble because, not of intention, but because there's less and less money, discretionary funding, to do this kind of cutting-edge science and engineering and that raises all kinds of other questions. I'm surprised they're still doing it at all. Frankly. I'm not. Really? I'm not. Space is overwhelmingly important to the human condition. And what we're going to talk about tonight will put several more data points on the board 
to show why, even as they're going down the drain economically, they have maintained at all costs a viable space program. Art, this is major news. All right. I want to drag you back for a second before we get into that. Um, I sent you something on purpose earlier. I hope you got it. One thing that you, number of things. Yeah, <laughs> one, one thing that you and I have never really covered on the air extensively is our environment. Mm-hmm. And there are several things going on in the environment right now that have me shaking my head. One is the weather. We talked about that. Yep. Incredible weather. Um, another. Yeah, I, I, I call it hyperdimensional weather. Hyperdimensional weather, yeah. Um, <laughs> another is the New York Times article I sent you, which seems to absolutely say that the, the fish damage we're now seeing uh, is has been positively and absolutely linked to ultraviolet radiation, a result of the ozone hole. Well, some of it. Or some of it. I mean, we, there, you know, there, we've are got obvious, frogs. there are obvious examples now which can be attributed definitely to the hole. Mutated frogs, Richard. Albino frogs in England. I didn't send you that one. Um, and, you know, out here in Las Vegas, uh, they found fish with... Um, with just absolutely horrible uh, mutations uh-huh. in Lake Mead. Uh-huh. You know, Lake Mead, the water supply for Las Vegas. And all over the planet, uh, we've got the Larsen Ice Shelf ready to slide into the water, crack off. People are worried about the Ross Ice Shelf. And it just goes on and on and on. The state of the environment uh, here, is it a reason, in your view, to be really concerned, a little concerned, watchful, or we ought to be on this right now kind of deal? Well, we should have been on it 20 years ago. I mean, we are seeing the chickens coming home to roost. Uh, The chlorofluorohydrocarbon problem, you know, the spray can problem, which the manufacturer said was not a problem, and and we put limits on in the industrial world, but in the unindustrial world, the so-called third world, those controls do not apply. And every new air conditioner and every new freon plant in the third world in India or in Africa or in South America is is not regulated at least as far as I'm I'm aware except maybe the new the, the treaty that was signed a couple of years ago the uh the uh, environmental treaty in in South America right may in fact include ultimate controls but you're you're way down the pipeline in terms of the damage the damage is already occurring the ozone hole which has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger is evidence of you know, trans, transgressions environmentally that have occurred in the past, the last 10, 20, 30 years. The problem is it's been a political thing, Richard. It has and, been and, and will be political and economic, and the, that's the bad news. Now, the good news is that if you had a space program worthy of the name, yes, I mean one that we really put money behind and really have political uh, leadership behind and was international, there are meaningful, radically interesting and engineering steps that could be done right now to begin to repair the damage. Like what? Well, let me, let me, let me lay out the problem so that everybody understands what's going on. We on planet Earth live about 93 million miles away from a star called the Sun. Right. We are surrounded by an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere with a speck of other stuff in it. And because of ultraviolet light and the copious supply of oxygen in our atmosphere supplied basically by living organisms, green plants, mostly microscopic green plants in the oceans, okay, um, 
We produce such amounts of oxygen that at the upper level of the atmosphere, at the transition between the so-called troposphere and the stratosphere, around 40 miles up, the ultraviolet from the sun produces a form of oxygen called ozone. Instead of O2, it's O3. It's three oxygen atoms stuck together. Right. That ozone, which is a byproduct of life on Earth and the sunlight ultraviolet coming from the sun, uh, screens the life down below from the deadly rays of the sun, the deadly ultraviolet short wavelength high energy rays mm. that would otherwise not only produce intense sunburns, but would ultimately eliminate life on Earth. Right. That delicate balance has gone on for literally millions, if not hundreds of millions of years, until, until a technological civilization at yeah. our point in time in the planet evolved to create chlorofluorohydrocarbons, which is a chemistry that busily produces a molecule that does not exist in nature, that when it is released into the air from air conditioners and spray cans and, you know, sprayed Teflon and Pam and, you know, uh, hairsprays for, for people who want to keep their hair in place, it floats up in the atmosphere until it is broken apart by sunlight and releases primarily the chlorine, mm -hmm. which then goes the rest of the way to the stratosphere-troposphere boundary and busily attacks viciously attacks, assiduously attacks the ozone by combining with it, reducing ozone back to oxygen and a chlorine and oxygen atom. I forget, you know, the chemistry term for that. The point is that the more chlorofluorohydrocarbons we produce through the industrial process, the more we have been eating away at the protective shielding layer that keeps all life present on this planet All right, hold, and, hold. and unscreened from, muta from mutation. All right, hold that thought. We'll pick up right there when we come back. All right, everybody, we're going to break here at the bottom of the hour. My guest is Richard C. Hoagland, advisor to NASA, science advisor to Walter, C., uh, Walter Cronkite, daddy, and the winner of the Engstrom Science Award. And tonight we will discuss many, many things. Stay right where you are. This is TRN and CBC, Talk Radio Network and Chancellor Broadcasting Company, home of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. AM 1500 KSTV. Art Bell is taking calls on the wild card line. At 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell. Well, good morning. 
I love the way this commercial starts. If you're over 40 and want to feel like you're 20 again, listen to me, because this message is for you. I mean... <laughs> uh, would we ask if you're 20 and want to feel 40, or how about 50 or 60? This is for you. No one listens. The number again, 1-800-921-3000. Back now to Manhattan and Richard C. Hoagland. Richard, uh -huh. uh, the ozone. So we've got, we've got the ozone layer. Or yeah, I mean, we had it. ozone is, life is not possible without ozone, and ozone is not possible without life. In fact, one of the interesting things about this new rash of planets... That which, which, which came first, Richard? Well, the <laughs> life came second because it was the ultraviolet. Again, these are the models, the astrophysical model. In the beginning, it was supposedly the ultraviolet from the sun hmm. on the primeval soup of the Earth's atmosphere minus free oxygen that created the complex organic molecules that eventually become DNA, that eventually are self-replicating, that eventually produce life forms, that then produce excess oxygen that screens out the ultraviolet that allows evolution to progress up the evolutionary chain, eventually us. Okay. That's the theory. Now, there are a lot of interesting things we could say about the theory, but tonight's not the night to do that. The point is that without life producing oxygen, green plants, primarily in the oceans, little tiny one-celled uh, uh, photosynthetic plankton and, and, uh, and, and other organisms, we would not be alive here because the ultraviolet from the sun, unscreened by ozone, is deadly. And these various observations around the planet are indicating that even a small percentage decrease in the amount of ozone protection that we normally enjoy due to this industrial production of a material that gobbles up ozone when it gets up 40 miles, uh, is very deleterious. Now, in fact, I don't think that the majority of the weirdness being reported is due to the ozone depletion. I think that that, in fact, is limited to certain regions, primarily where the hole and where the, the decrease is, is, is the largest, and that because the biologists don't know any other mechanism they're basically reaching that, in fact, there are more interesting or equally interesting relationships that are currently unknown to science that might be uh, usefully discussed at some other time that come from, among other things, the hyperdimensional model. All right. I, I sent you also a little article entitled uh, The Rising Seas, Trends in Climate well, Research. Well, let's not leave ozone for a second because, remember, this is the problem. Well, you know, I, I'm staying with the environment here, but okay. Ozone. All right. Well, before the break, I was going to tell you that we can do something about this. Like what? If we had the space program that we should have, and we were putting the high-level industrial kinds of monies into space that we have been promised for the last 30-plus years, ever since we went to the moon and then did nothing, all right, we would now have in hand upstairs a mechanism to basically... Stop the problem cold. How? Ah, it's simple. If the sun produces ozone by means of ultraviolet light on oxygen, right. then man could produce 
ozone by means of ultraviolet light on oxygen. It's basically an income-outgo problem, all right? Uh, you have a bank account. Think of your bank account as ozone, all right? You go to your cash machine and you make withdrawals. Think of that as the chlorofluorohydrocarbon depletion of the ozone in your bank. You also have an income, a salary, right? Right. And you put in deposits. Right. Think of that as sunlight making new ozone. Okay, how do we make a deposit? Ah, how do we make deposits? Yep. Well, in the last, since 83, uh, when President Reagan announced the so-called SDI program, Star Wars, mm-hmm. we've had the military-industrial complex looking assiduously at ways to shoot down ballistic missiles. Right. And one of the technologies that was tested and focused on and a lot of hardware developed, and then it's kind of sitting on the shelf because the Cold War suddenly went away and the Soviet Union suddenly wasn't going to shoot missiles at us anymore, was something called a battery of chemical lasers. If we were to put sun-pumped ultraviolet lasers in orbit in a series of stations in orbits around the Earth, Yes. And they would use mile-size arrays of solar cells to basically electrically charge tanks of certain chemicals that could then be brought together in the lasers and aim tangentially at the upper atmosphere of the Earth. Mm-hmm. We could, in very short order, repair the damage caused by a 20, 30 years of chlorofluorohydrocarbon depletion. Because unlike the sun, which uses broadband ultraviolet to produce ozone, we know from science, from chemistry, from high school chemistry, exactly what wavelengths produce ozone to the maximum efficiency. And we can tune our lasers so we don't have to you know, throw the blinding light of the whole ultraviolet spectrum at the Earth, we only have to use those narrow band wavelengths that produce ozone effectively and efficiently. Richard, could the HARP project uh, have as one of its unstated goals this kind of research? No, because the HARP is microwave and low-frequency radio waves, and you can't produce ozone with that. It, okay. it, it really is a quanta problem. You require the high-level, high-energy ultraviolet. But what I'm saying is that if we were to stop making weapons of war and think of more efficient ways to kill people and use that same genius and innovative engineering to now take that technology, which is almost off the shelf, and apply it to this problem, which affects every man, woman, and child directly or indirectly, because if the food chain, if the whales along the southern fringe of the Antarctic continent don't get the proper amount of krill because the plankton are being killed by exposure to ultraviolet coming down through the ozone hole over the Antarctic, then that propagates through an enormous amount of the food chain in the southern waters around the South Pole. And on and on and on. I mean, everyone knows the Greenpeace slogans, the environmental litany. We know the biosphere is intricately and inextricably interconnected. What is going to happen if we do not take the kind of steps you outlined and we continue uh, to lose ozone? What, What is going to happen? 
Well, you'll be darting from building to building wearing 35 sunblock and three layers of sunglasses. <laughs> and you'll be, you know, living off very expensive vegetables grown in hydroponic gardens, but that's only going to be the people in the upper 1% of income because other people won't be able to afford vegetables, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, without ozone, the whole damn life support system of the planet collapses and we're in deep doo-doo. Well, then I think we are because, here, listen to this, Richard. We are but the U.S. We use an enormous amount of the world's resources, energy resources. Now, the rest of the world, I went to China. I saw it, Richard. I know what's going on. And uh, so many other spots in the world, they want what we've got. And the only way they're going to get there right now is the same way we did. So if you think there's depletion going on now, you just wait till some of these other countries begin to crank up industrially. Well, to some extent you're right, to some extent you're not, because you're extrapolating linearly. The fact is that chlorofluorohydrocarbons are not the most efficient way to make air conditioners. They happen to be the first way. They happen to be the cheapest way. Um, there are there There is a progression of engineering going on, and by the time they you get to the level where the Chinese have mass access to money and and technology to where they can afford the kind of air conditioners we have, there'll be a different kind of air conditioning fluid, so they will not impact the environment the way we have. Right. If that is the only influence on the ozone. Now, let me ask you one. Well, it's one of the primary ones. Because I understand, but I want you to knock something down or confirm it. People are constantly calling, even some in science, who have said every time we launch a shuttle, we destroy quite a bit of ozone. Is that baloney or is it real? No, it's absolutely real. It's absolutely real. It's not just the shuttle. It's any major solid fuel rocket, all right, mm -hmm. Ariane, the Deltas. Uh, it's a major problem. Now, the way you get around that problem is you stop launching shuttles with this stupid, arcane, backward technology, and you go to anti-gravity, <laughs> okay? You apply hyperdimensional physics. Now, I was very heartened the other day to see that the Final Frontier magazine, which I wanted to talk about anyway, uh, you know, published out of the Midwest. Yes. Which is kind of one of the NASA family. Sure. Um, ran a very aggressive set of articles, not only on the fossil life from Mars, but also on the uh, uh, Finnish experiments. All right? The um, uh, anti-gravity experiment that we covered some months ago. Not everybody knows about that. I've got a lot of new affiliates. I always have new affiliates. Okay. So very briefly, 101 on what they did in Finland. There was an, there was a physicist and colleagues at the university, at, at Tempir University, who was about to publish a paper describing extended recent experiments using superconducting uh, technology and spinning disks that appeared to to replicate uh, in, a, in a predictable manner a significant weight loss up to maybe a percent or something uh, under certain conditions. And this was was uh, a follow-on to experiments that apparently the same physicists had conducted in 1992, which had been published in one of one of the preeminent scientific journals of the world, the Physica C, and had been reviewed by people of no less credibility than the physicists at the Max Planck Institute. So, in other words, under controls, they actually determined that a mass uh, under these conditions weighed less, which yep. means that you are shielding. 
Well, in that's some one way. possible interpretation, but Shielding. in fact, if you get into the nitty-gritty and people can go back and listen to the archive tapes of the Art Bell show, right. it's probably not shielding, it's probably hyperdimensional physics, but that's a, that's a detail. All right. The, the, the geopolitical thing of incredible significance is that Final Frontier magazine, uh, in the last couple of months, apparently ran an extensive article describing the Finnish physicist and his colleagues and the fear over the paper that was suddenly withdrawn, the second paper, and the fact that NASA Huntsville was planning to replicate the experiment. And they promised their readers to follow the story, to stay tuned. And that NASA, there were NASA people who were seriously interested. Well, obviously, if this experiment is replicated, and uh, in a future show, I will bring finally to your audience uh, a physicist who has replicated it to my satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And we are about to put this on our website with proper documentation and all that. It's taken a while. This is not cutting edge stuff, and you can't leap for the first lily pad. So if this guy has done it, which I believe he has, and he represents a military laboratory, all right, was employed, has been employed, is employed at one of the key military research laboratories, and did this work not in that lab but in a private college lab, mm -hmm. then the NASA experiments cannot be far behind. Given the bureaucracy, they could be a little further behind, but eventually they will replicate. This appears to really be replicable. It appears to really stand still. Now, if that is true, then you can imagine the day someday, I'm not going to put a time frame on it, when you can get rid of these idiot things called rockets and go to what we would term field propulsion or gravity manipulation, in which case the impact of leaving the Earth on the environment becomes zero. Right. And that is not science fiction because... Final Frontier is a very, how should I say this? It used to be a very anal retentive. May, may I ask you a question, Richard? A dumb yes. question, civilian question. Anything. If you had a craft operated uh, with some sort of anti-gravity device, mm -hmm. as I understand it presently, we must must achieve to leave escape velocity. Yes. Wrong. Wrong. Well, no. Wrong. Now, the only as reason it is you now, have to achieve escape velocity to leave the Earth permanently is because you're using a reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. That's what I said. Rocket. Now, as it is now, we yeah. must achieve escape velocity. Right. If you had anti-gravity... Um, well, well, you could drift upward at one mile per hour... Until you were finally until you were finally out, right? Yeah. Well, you're, ah. well out, is, out is a relative term. Yeah, yeah. Gravity decreases, decreases, decreases. You're never away from the influence of any gravitational field. It just gets weaker and weaker and weaker, and it falls off with the inverse square of the distance, meaning that at some finite distance, it's effectively gone. Would an anti-gravity device be more effective, Richard, uh, closer to the source of what it was repelling from, no. if, if we want to think of it that way, no. or no. would it be more effective in the vastness of space? Well, if it's true field effect technology, field effect propulsion, you can think of this in terms of theoretical terms. No, because... Um, it becomes more efficient in a high-gravity field, and it becomes less efficient in a low-gravity field, but it doesn't need to be as efficient in a low-gravity field because the gravity is less. So it kind of balances out. The key thing is I the see. energy supply. I see. You need an energy source. Now, I strongly believe 
that what we're seeing out of Tempir, out of Finland, and Finland is going to come up a lot tonight, boys and girls, all right? Um, not just because of Helsinki and the president and Yeltsin meeting there, but because of some pretty astonishing things we have found that we're going to communicate tonight, and you're going to play a part in verifying. But I believe strongly that this is the public side of the private black research and development program, which has been aggressively pursued for over 30 years. Remember, we have a video out there, which is a piece of shuttle video that came to us by way of sources in Maryland, uh, that was downlinked from STS-48, the Space Transportation System Mission Number 40, uh, uh, 48, right. in uh, September of 91. Yes. Which shows some astonishing things cavorting around in Earth orbit that NASA's party line says are ice crystals and all the independent analyses say are spaceships operating some kind of anti-gravity technology. And those range from our own analysis to Mark Carvalho's analysis, to the physicist in the University of Nebraska, John uh, Kasher, uh, to others that have come on board. Everybody who looks at this NASA says it's Boulder Dash. Yeah, well, NASA is full of Boulder Dash. And they also now don't allow astronauts to point point cameras uh, full-time out the windows anymore. anymore All the shuttle video outside is delayed, not by your familiar Radio 7 Seconds art, but by almost a full minute. They really want to, they have slow guys on the trigger, so they need to have a lot of time to point the camera to something dull. And that happened after SDS-48. You are seeing no live video, including from Hubble. The Hubble repair recently or the Hubble refurbishment? I recall. That was not live. That really? was a minute old by the time you got to see it. Now, why would they do that? I know, I know. Well, let's not... No, I mean, that's a good question. Why? Why? Why the delay? Let's Let's answer that. There is no answer. If you can get NASA to give us a good answer, then you're a better man than I, Gungadin. Well, at least, you know, when you're watching the NFL... I mean, are they afraid astronauts will leap into expletives deleted or something? And there's a... Well, maybe they are. (laughs) I mean, that sounds silly, We used to have live video and audio from the moon. And there was an astronaut. His name was Gene Cernan on Apollo 10. And when something happened during the disconnect of the ascent stage from the descent stage... We heard live, across a quarter of a million miles, a whole string of explosive deletives. But NASA didn't suddenly go to a minute delay on air-to-ground communications from the astronauts for 30 years. Did you see the facts I just sent you on the STS-80? Um, audio? I think it is arriving from the fax machine even as we speak. Well, you better take a look at that during okay. the break. I've got it here. This is the uh, Ben Gay. Um, this is... Um... No, no, no. This is something... Someone is sending me something or sending you something separate. Oh, I see. No, I sent you something uh, which starts out, Dear Art, a satellite and communications consultant named John Locker claims to have overheard the following space shuttle NASA TV conversation on February 18th. Gives the time. The transcript follows, and it's pretty weird stuff. So look through your pile of faxes and see if you've got that. (laughs) Uh, No, I just got another one, which is kind of funny. Um, no, I did not get the one that you uh, sent to me unless you give me more clues. All right. Well, I'll do better than that during the break. I will get it to you. How's that? Okay. All right. All right. Hold on, Richard. We will be right back. We've got lots and lots and lots to talk about tonight. 
By the way, everybody, um, a lot of people trying to order uh, tapes of previous programs, including Sean Morton. If you want a copy of that, or for the, uh, that matter, this night's program, the number is 1-800-917-4278. That's 1-800-917-4278. And you're listening to the still independent CBC Radio Network. Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Listeners west of the Rockies can call Art toll-free by dialing 1-800-618-8255. If you're east of the Rockies, the toll-free number is 800-825-5033. If you've never called Art before, you may use the first-time caller line at area code 702-727-1222. And the wild card line is area code 702 702- 727-1295. When you get through, let it ring, and Art will answer your call in order on the air. This is the CBC Radio Network. West of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033. 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. It is. Good morning, everybody. Richard C. Hoagland is my guest from Manhattan, New York. He's winner of the Engstrom Science Award, a one-time advisor to NASA and science advisor to Walter Cronkite. And we're talking of many, many things this morning. I think you'll find it fascinating. Stay right where you are and buckle in. Well, that's it. Symptoms. So call 1-800-249-6060. Again... 1-800-249-6060. All right. We've been discussing the ozone in the first hour, and toward that end, Richard, let me come back to you with this. Art, I have read that CFCs are four times heavier than air. If that's true, how in the world can CFCs float up to the ozone layer? Well, first of all, they're kicked up by memory convection. Remember why fires are dangerous in spacecraft on Earth? Yes, sir. We have very active convective things on Earth called thunderstorms. That's true. And you get very strong. I mean, if you've ever been flying in an airplane, particularly in the lee of the Rocky Mountains, mm-hmm. and you do not have your seatbelt fastened. Mm, bang, bang. And suddenly, exactly. Um, over the long term, and the long term in this case is months or years, uh, even gases that are heavier than air, 
will work their way up and down. And then what happens, you see, is that the solar ultraviolet begins to break the molecule apart. So it's the, it's the chlorine that actually winds up floating up. Mm. And it's the chlorine that does the damage. That's what attacks the oxygen, uh, the, the triatomic oxygen, the O3, and basically makes ozone, gobbles up ozone. Okay, right? well, I've always wondered here. about that. I always thought that a good question. Now, we were talking about Finland and anti-gravity. Yes. And, Richard, I'm going to tell you about something I saw the other day, and I don't know if you happen to see it, but believe me when I tell you what I'm about to tell you is true. CNN ran a report, again, I think it was Finland, with video showing strong magnetic fields levitating, get this, flowers, tadpoles, and spiders. I saw a spider, Richard, in midair, just, you know, absolutely as though there, w there was no gravity at all, moving his little legs around, probably wondering what the hell's going on. But he was levitated. And flowers, how could they do that with magnetics? Well, I didn't see that report. I'd love to know what what uh, news program? Because they have several news programs. It, it was on. It was on uh, the nine o'clock regular CNN news. This was in the morning. Evening. Evening. Yes, sir. Okay. Do you remember what day? No. Um, my wife may. I've got the videotape in the other room, though. But I guarantee it ran. All right. Do me a favor. In your copious spare time, run the video. Get the correspondent and the location, all that. We have friends at CNN in Atlanta. We can run it down, and I'll report back. All right. In the meantime, I'm sure somebody in the audience will surf the Internet, find it for me. and uh... There are people, you know, who report unusual magnetic phenomena vis-a-vis -vis human beings. Oh, the scientist interviewed said he could do this with a human. There is a there is a Russian video that I saw some years ago of a gal that was able to attract all kinds of flatware. You know, she's standing there with irons and frying pans and all kinds of other stuff dripping off her, a rather um, uh, portly individual, if I remember, and it 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 was behaving exactly as if it was magnetism. Now I don't know of the laboratory. You know, results. I don't know of any actual lab measurements that were made. I mean, magnetism is is a, again a phenomenon that we think we understand because we've given it a name and we have described it. But in fact, all science does is to produce coherent, predictive descriptions of phenomena. When you get, when you down, get down to the nitty gritty, explaining how the phenomena are produced at some level. Science basically, at, at the current era, has thrown up its hands and says, damn if I know. Well, can you conceive of any way that a strong magnetic field could levitate a biological uh, organism? Well, again, I come back to this hyperdimensional model. Yes, there are conditions under which living organisms can levitate. Uh, there are very well-documented reports of certain individuals, saints, okay, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, who have been reported to levitate in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people, hmm. over and over and over again. People in intense meditation. This, this in fact, happened in, 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 in cathedrals in, in, in Europe in, in the last century a lot. 
and was one reason for them ultimately becoming canonized. Uh, there's one in particular, I forget her name. Um, it's been a while since I've had to remember this stuff. The point is that <clears throat> there is a beginning appreciation, at least on the part of what we've been doing, of a connection between what we think of as physics art and metaphysics. Metaphysics is a term meaning yes. the physics of the whole. Yes. Meta meaning the whole. When you say metaphysics to most people in the latter part of the 20th century, they think of that airy-fairy, flaky, New Age stuff. I know. Right? I know. In fact, if the hyperdimensional model is is true, and there's more and more observational, laboratory, and astronomical evidence that it is, that we have rediscovered where physics would have gone a hundred years ago were it not for a very quirky left-hand turn that science took uh, right. back in the uh, late 1800s. Right. Well, the New Agers have a, a bad name or a bad rap, but the fact of the matter is, if hyperdimensional physics is a reality, then a lot of what they talk about in New Age is really based on that even if they don't know it. Precisely. And for those who are more familiar with, with Tom Bre uh, Bearden and the scalar uh, uh, discussions that he talks about, it's the same thing. And it has to do with how our reality, how our laws of physics, our laws of matter, energy, radiation, how they interact, gravity, all of that, where it really derives from. Where do these laws that we observe in the so-called physical world, how do they relate to each other and where do they ultimately derive from? As, as you know, before he died, Einstein, uh, in the la his latter years, before he died in 1955, he was pursuing something called the Grand Unified Field Theory. Right. A theorem that he believed he could write as an equation that would unite all of the known forces of nature known up until 1955. Mm -hmm. There, after he died, a, a legion of physicists took over. And there have been many, many, many valiant attempts and papers published and conferences held and are still being held with this uh, effort to unite, to combine observations of science into one grand explanation, one grand theory. In fact, now some of the quirkier wags in the scientific community have, have given it a kind of a slang expression. They call it TOE, T-O-E. The theory of everything. <laughs> All right? So if you keep stubbing your toe, it means you haven't got toe. Anyway, the point is that we've been seeking this unification. Well, if you go to the metaphysician, particularly in the last century, and some of the leading lights whose work, whose writings, uh, you know, deserve to be studied and, and, and followed, or if you look at metaphysicians over the last several centuries from the Far East, from the, also from the Western tradition, you find there are commonalities that uh, seek to explain the world we can see in terms of an invisible world, an invisible reality that we can't see. Now, the only way that that is at all possible is if there is some mechanism of communication between the one level of reality and the other level of reality. Mm -hmm. 
you know, for people who might find it hard to imagine that the that the visible is somehow modulated or influenced or shaped by the invisible, it's very easy to prove this uh, if you're flying in an airliner. All right. Now you don't want to be part of the experiment, but at least. When you're leaving the ground, every stewardess takes the time to describe a set of events whereby if you were to participate in those events, you would see the invisible becoming visible. They read through that checklist and they show you how if you were to lose cabin pressure, yes. the oxygen mass would drop down, right? Yes. What they don't tell you is if you lose pressure, what will happen is because of the sudden partial vacuum created as you're zipping along at 600 miles an hour, 35,000 feet over whatever, all of the water vapor in the air, which is normally invisible, will suddenly turn very visible and become a dense fog and nobody will see anything. And you won't be able to see that oxygen mask for a few seconds. Better tell you that. They don't tell you. They should tell you that. <laughs> they don't I... want to scare you to... You know what? All right, look, we're trying to cover but things. But that's the invisible that's there all the you. time. The water yeah. vapor is around you all the time, but under certain conditions, it suddenly becomes visible. All right, all right. It's clouds all right. or fog. Hold up for a second. While we're here, Richard, stop for a second, and let me read you this. Uh, just came in. CBS says, it has given investigators a piece of seat fabric that a freelance writer claims holds proof that TWA Flight 800 was down by a Navy missile. The FBI wanted the fabric because it's investigating whether evidence from the crash, get this, has been stolen. James Sanders is an advocate of the friendly fire theory, which the government says has no basis in fact. So you combine that with the second round from Pierre Salinger, and where do you think we are now, Richard, with Flight 800? Well, what I'm intrigued with, over and beyond the catastrophe that took the lives of 240-some people and left us this lingering mystery since last July 17th, is how when Salinger, who is no dummy, he is no fool, he is no idiot, he was press secretary to one of the more interesting and, and certainly legendary presidents of these United States, John Kennedy, he then had a distinguished career for 40-plus years as a journalist. Right. He was a senior correspondent for ABC News. He broke hard-hitting, very complicated stories involving Europe, internecine politics. Now, I've got you. In other words, mainstream dude would not uh, go quickly around the bend. No, no. The, I mean, the idea that Pierre Salinger has suddenly fallen off a turnip truck and doesn't know how to tell a real source from, from hoax fake material is not believable. What is much more believable is that Pierre Salinger is one of the few journalists of integrity who is attempting to follow the story wherever it leads. And the incredible backlash and reaction against his theory and the evidence he is putting forward and the sources he is drawing upon, which include French intelligence sources, and Richard Russell and this uh, video of the uh, FAA uh, air traffic control system that night, that that overreaction by the American press and the American government is some measure that Salinger is on to something. 
Now, I am not, I don't have the evidence myself to say that, that Pierre's theory is correct. But I am saying that the extraordinary reaction to the press conference that he held on the 13th of March, just last week, apparently triggered a series of events in short order, which I intend to discuss as the evening progresses, and that involves also something that this audience can physically do that may shed light on these mysteries as they stand separate and they relate to each other. Too many mysteries. Uh, here's another one. This whole audience, based on your previous appearances uh, and things said by Arthur C. Clarke uh, uh, about uh, things that you had said, we were all looking forward to these incredible photographs that we were going to get of um, uh, the moons of uh, Jupiter. Yes. And there were supposed to be very detailed, very good photographs. In fact, as far as I know, the spacecraft went by... And I, I haven't seen a photograph yet. No. Where are the photographs? And you're not likely to. Um, Please, what's going on? Well, look, you know, the, the, the bottom line is, and I am now speaking after 15 years of trying to find out the truth, the space agency that we are paying for tonight is simply not telling us the truth. And it is becoming increasingly obvious to more and more people that there is something radically amiss. Um, yeah, really radically. Really radically. I mean, these photos were going to come to us right away, and they would have possibly shown ice cracks and the possibility of life down there and all the rest of it. So these are important pictures. I want to know where they are. Well, there are a couple on the JPL Galileo website. And what we have done is we have gone in, as others have, and we have uh, download, downloaded them. We have looked at them, and we have uploaded them to our website, and we'll be uploading in the next few days even more. But there is a incredibly tiny handful, maybe two or three, out of the supposedly hundreds that have been taken. Exactly. Which no one has seen. Right. And what is very disturbing, Art, is if you log on to the official NASA websites to see these images, Yes. what you find is that they have been deliberately tampered with. What? what NASA is doing, and it, 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 it is confounding that nobody in the mainstream community is in high dudgeon about this, is that they are deliberately de-resing. That is, they are deliberately blurring the pictures and then they are presenting them as compressed data files using the JPEG algorithm, which is a very lossy sure. algorithm that sure. produces all kinds of spurious noise into the image right. so that you can't tell ultimately what's real and what's Memorex. And the idea that they have such limited engineering understanding of computer compression technology that they would choose the most lossy mechanism to provide the American public that are paying for this data, versions of this data. For anyone who knows anything about imaging, it's obvious that this is a very sophisticated level of, of uh, sequestration well, I would of, expect the, of the real that, data. Yeah, that these photographs would be put up there in the uncompressed mode 
which means they're large files, so there could be peer review, and that they are not doing that is very suspicious. Well, they have said to, in all the captions, they're claiming that there can be no official release for a year and that no sign of conclusions can be drawn. And in one sense, they are they are correct. I mean, you would you'd be a fool to stake anything on what is in the public domain because it has been subjected to such lousy compression technology. To give you an example, on the last few days on the NSSDC website, which is the National Space Science Data Center in Washington, uh, there has appeared a an image of the face on Mars, taken from, I believe, 35A72, which is one of the two Viking shots taken back in 1976. Right. Um, it has been cropped from the original full frame. Yes. It has been enlarged about three times. Yes. It has been JPEGed, meaning it has been compressed. Right. And it is a 10K file, meaning it has 10,000 bytes of information. Not very big. What's happened is because of the severe compression, it is so distorted, it is almost unrecognizable. And were it not for the caption, which explains that it's from... 35A72, you would think that it was, uh, had been deliberately altered or, or was made up or, you know, done in some kind of paint program. One of our collaborative websites, uh, Kinthea's, uh, Planetary Mystery site, which can be found by linking through our site. Well, we both have better through, site, site pictures of, uh, the face than that, Richard. What? Well, but here's the point. What they've done is to put a comparison side by side in a whole page called NASA's New Face. All right, hold that, tonight. hold that thought because we're at the bottom of the hour. We will be right back. Richard C. Hoagland is my guest. We have many things to talk about. Stay right where you are. This is CBC. This is TRN and CBC, Talk Radio Network and Chancellor Broadcasting Company, home of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. This is Art Bell. Join me at 2 a.m. for a very different kind of talk show. We talk about the unusual, bizarre, controversial, and you're invited to join. If you're tired of the same old political banner and mindless chatter that clutters late-night airwaves, <laughs> then tune in for a listening experience that's right out of this world. It's called Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Late nights. Weekend on Dreamland, Paul Crumper, author of Modern Day Miracles. Don't you dare miss it. This is Art Bell. Just because we can't prove it yet does not mean it may not be so. Come explore the unknown, the as yet unproven. Dreamland. That's 1-800-557-4627. You've got nothing to lose but the fat. All right. Uh, Richard C. Hoagland on once again. By the way, before we get uh, started, Richard, once again, did you happen to get the facts I sent you on STS-82? No. Did, hang on a sec. Did we get a fax on STS-82? Yes, you did. From our... Nope. Better, better have it. Nope. Did uh, not come. Um, okay. I've sent it twice now. 
That's interesting. Uh, it is. I'll send it again. I have someone picking up faxes and depositing them right here. Okay. And nothing's arrived on that. Hmm. All right. So anyway, you're actually claiming then... <clears throat> oh, wait, 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 wait. Here it is on the bottom of the pile. Ah. Uh, the satellite communications consultant named John. Ah, John Locker, yes. February 18th, 639. Technology right. triumphs. Yes. All right. That and a bit of good staff work. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, I'll let you uh, examine that at your leisure, and you can comment on it. Oh, uh, I already have. Yeah, I had read it earlier. I didn't connect the number. I see. Okay. Um. Well, I don't know what to say. I mean, so we've got astronauts reporting without a flash, the light flashed by me. There it is again. I thought I must be seeing things. I mean, there's no way to know what they were looking at. We don't have video. Well, if you read into the second page, yeah, that's right. We don't have video. Yeah. Well, we do have video. Uh, of SDS-48, and That's apparently right. there's another example that was shown uh, where we have video of things equally as impressive as SDS-48. Uh, and I don't remember which mission, but, um, we, you know, I didn't think we'd get into shuttle missions to see weird things. Okay, well, you know, all of this makes no sense to me if there is this technology that either others have or we have. Yes. Um that uses the kind of forces that you've talked about so many times on this program. Right. Then what are the Russians doing launching Mir? What are we doing launching the shuttle? What are we doing uh, uh, scooting around with old-fashioned uh, rocketry, burning holes in the ozone? Um, why are okay. we doing all this? I mean, it's a good right. question, this, Richard. This gets to the heart of what I want to talk about this evening. Good. Go. Okay. Um, let, me, let me start with some background. Uh, I'm going to mention a name that I am not very fond of, uh, which is Bill Cooper. All right? Uh, I have never been a fan of Bill's work. That makes two of us. Because uh, he basically has what I think of as the spaghetti approach to this problem. Anyway. Which is if you throw enough of it on the wall, yeah. something is going to stick. Right. He's not my favorite guy either. But right. anyway. However, Bill Cooper gave me a vital clue years ago, and I and I was thinking tonight whether I should attribute him publicly or should, you know, basically just have said a source, and I decided that I would do it publicly because I want everyone out there to know that what I'm going to say tonight, uh, I'm, I'm saying because this is where I believe we are now. Yeah. If there's one thing that you can count on from this investigation is that when we have figured out another piece of this puzzle, we will lay it out. We will lay out the documentation. We will lay out the logic chain okay. of evidence that has led us from point A to point B to point C. All right. If there are people that disagree with that, that's fine. I'm not running for public office. I'm not, you know, entertaining the Chinese. I don't have a bedroom where people can stay over in, although I'm really thinking that might be an interesting way to raise some funds for the investigation. You know, open up a spare bedroom and give it a sexy name and... <laughs> See who shows up. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm trying, and 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 the the colleagues that are working with us, literally now all over the world, we literally have somebody in the sands of Egypt tonight, Art, who I am very jealous of because he is going to get one hell of a view of Hale Bop over the pyramids before dawn. Have you seen it yet? I have not seen it yet because oh, I'm in the biggest city Richard. in the world. Give oh, me a break, all Richard, right? Richard, let me tell you. I have you. got to go out into the country. I have to make an expedition 
to see this thing. Richard, after the program is over, every morning now I go out, and uh, there it is, 30 or 40 degrees in the sky, blazing, I would say, in my estimation, Richard, as bright as Jupiter, or yes. just as close to that as you can imagine. With a tail, what, about 20 degrees long? Oh, my God, it's gigantic. It's, well, it's measure it by gigantic. That's precise. You will really. never forget the sight, Richard. <laughs> Now, all right, now, what if? All right, let me let me let me make some people mad right away. Sure, right. go right ahead. Why what if I was going to tell you that I can prove in the next few minutes that Hale Bob is deliberate? It is not a cosmic visitor. It is not an errant chunk of rock. It is not a random fleck of cosmic flotsam or jetsam that is coursing around the sun. Someone has presented us with a gift, precisely and deliberately. And it's not aliens. Well, then I'd probably want to run a commercial to hold them over and make them listen. But I, <laughs> I won't do that. So you go ahead and tell us. That's too important. <laughs> well, let me just let that lie for a few minutes here. No. Absolutely. Come on. This is no, no, you can't, you can't tempt us like that. I can do that. Yes, yes. Because I want to go back to Bill Cooper. <laughs> okay. it, it relates. Believe all right, me. All it all right. relates. All right. Our trek, our effort for the last 15 years since I got into this and realized that it was so much deeper and wider than I could have possibly imagined and became determined I'm going to see it through till the bitter end. Wherever the truth leads, I'm going to be there. I'm going to follow. Right. And it has led in some stunning and astonishing and surprising directions. Um, that being the cornerstone of the work that I and my colleagues are trying to do to the best of our ability. When we discover new stuff, I have to report it, if we can document it, if we can support it, so other people can follow the same trail, mm -hmm. so they can replicate it. Right. This is not, you know, Courtney Brown. This is not Farsight. This is not remote viewing. This is the old-fashioned elbow grease, leg work, good detective work, good thinking, good sources, and thank God for the Internet, because it's allowing us to do a lot of things we could not have done in the way of chasing down tidbits and snippets of information. For the moment, they are uh, in the process, by the way, of trying to uh, snip at the Internet. They are trying, and yeah. they're going to fail, because it's yeah. bigger than all of it. I, I quite agree. It's yeah. an organism. Yep, yep. It is not. And, and it'll be interesting to see how the court responds. The questioning today by some, like Judge uh, Scalia, was very perceptive. Because he says, I have to throw my damn computer out every five years. How can you make laws governing this when it's in process? <laughs> All right? Exactly. Very perceptive comment. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping the court is going to be 21st century minded and realize that since most of the, we're getting far afield here, but most of the pornography, which is the, the, the scare tactic, is coming at us from foreign sources anyway. You could make all the laws and tie up every person in the United States tight as a drum and you'd still have a problem with children and pornography and things that some people don't want them to see. Since we're far afield, let me stay, keep you there for one second with regard to the internet. Michael Crichton's new book, I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, the follow-up to Jurassic Park, has one passage in it that is devastatingly interesting. In it, Richard, he, his hypothesis is that the internet will actually slow evolution. He says uh, that if you take a small desert island and you put a few animals on it, they will evolve very quickly. 
and they will come up with separate ideas and solutions, and uh, they will uh, be entrepreneurish, and they will get things done because they must. But if you put many, 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 many birds on, giving them all the same ideas, and the, the Internet will get, uh, you know, people in India and Moscow and uh, Peking and Washington will have and share the same top ten ideas, it will actually slow evolution. He's wrong. He's dead-ass wrong. Okay. And the reason he's wrong is because he's he's trying to take into the realm of consciousness an analog from material evolutionary modeling, which is not accurate. Okay. What happens if I create a global organism that can talk to itself at the speed of light, where a, where a tidbit learned in Bangladesh Thursday last week right. is available on this laptop that I'm sitting here in my lap, literally as we speak. Well, then maybe right. you have the opposite effect. Maybe. Because what you're doing is you're basically making everybody smarter by orders of magnitude. The hard part about knowledge is not, um, it's not having wonderful ideas. It's having the ability to check and test the wonderful ideas. Mm -hmm. And the progress of science is limited not by the brightness of the, of, of, of some, you know, gal or guy in a lab, but in his or her ability to find out everybody else who's had the same idea and if it didn't work, discard it and go on. And what the Internet is going to allow us to do on a democratized level is to get rid of all the junky things that don't work and get on with the things that do work. So there's going to be an acceleration of progress of the most meaningful level rather than a retardation and a sameness. Good. Because, because the innovation comes from within the human being. The problem is that in art, you want all this diversity, but in science, you want to zero in on the one right answer and eliminate all the dumb, stupid, wrong answers. And that, if you're using pencil and paper or slide rules, has taken a heck load amount of time. Okay, well, I'm glad that we got a chance to address that. Now, back to Hellbop and uh, Mr. Cooper, I okay. guess. Okay, Mr. Uh, Cooper. Yeah. Mr. Cooper, when he rose above the signal to noise, first of all, Bill's background is fascinating. Naval intelligence, all right? That will become very, very apparent later on this morning, why naval intelligence is a key to solving, finally, to cracking this puzzle wide open, all right? Um, he says something in that book, Pale Horse, which is the most perceptive thing he said. You can discount all the rest. He said, after Roswell, which has been discussed on this show many, many times, people up to and including astronauts, Ed Mitchell, raised in Roswell, raises Roswell now to a new level, citing it as most likely to have happened, i.e. alien spacecraft crashes, U.S. government picks up pieces, hides same for yep. 50 years, yep, right? Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Ostensibly, a document then surfaces decades later on a piece of film given to uh, Jamie Shandera, right? The 35-millimeter cassette of film? Yes, sir which is called the Majestic 12 document. Right. Relating to 12 people, the creme de la creme of policymakers gathered around President then Truman. I know. That decide how to handle this and to create a kind of a sub-Rosa government. I know. Well, I got... Well, I, I'm just... I got, the, I got to play the part of one of those guys. That's at Dark true, Skies. That's true. I, I know okay. all about Majestic. Bill's 
insightful communication, which I think, frankly, was absolutely honest, was that we, all these years, those of us that have followed this, have not got what the real code name for this secret, secret project was and is. It was not and is not Majestic 12. It was and is Magic 12. So my little ID says magic. Now, magic is the key. Hmm. Because magic is exactly what we're dealing with in the so-called litany of secret societies. It is the connector between the Masonic link that we've now pursued all the way to the moon, all the way back through ancient Egypt, and the events that have taken place in the last week involving none other than President William Jefferson Clinton's little accident in Florida. Oh, really? Yes. So you can even wind it all into that. All right, let me only qualify Bill Cooper in the following way. I followed him for years. I've never had him as a guest. And aside from an early disagreement that I had with him, I have found that through the years, Richard, uh, in, he has talked about more and more and more things and has, in each case almost, reflected back to this these 1970s uh, briefings uh, that he supposedly had, which become the source for so much stuff that nobody could remember all of it. Yep. That's the problem I've had with Mr. Cooper. And the problem with people like Bill is that the more conspiracy you pile on more conspiracy without any tangible mechanism of testing. Remember, the cornerstone of what I and my colleagues are trying to do is to provide information that can be tested, right. that stands still. I would not be discussing this on the radio tonight, coast to coast, if I didn't have some very good new stuff that can be tested and anybody can test it. All right. Come to their own conclusion. All right. How? Well... Part of it has to do with this computer that's sitting here in my lap, which I'll which I'll get to in a few minutes, all right? Um, so the magic clue turned out to be very, very important. And I remember vividly that when this all kind of hit the fan for me, and I'm going to now go into a personal story because it is relevant, was the night that we returned, I and my colleagues, from our first trip, to NASA, to Goddard, to the National Space Science Data Center. If you'll remember, a couple, three years ago, uh, I took about eight people, ranging from, you know, technical people, photographic experts, geologists. I took some media people. Mm -hmm. I took a couple of producers. Yes. Uh, all of us, eight of us, spent two days at the National Space Science Data Center outside Washington, basically presenting them with the puzzles and conundrums and mysteries on their own data following my presentation at Ohio State. Mm -hmm. And it was at the end of that two days that the head of the of NSSDC was overheard by one of my folks to say to one of his folks, you know, uh, Hoagland and his people are more scientific than some of the folks we have here at NASA, which was extremely heartening to me. And I have to say that he made a pledge to us that afternoon that he would keep the doors open, that any and all data we requested we would get, and they have followed punctiliously to the letter that pledge. And we've well, gotten some marvelous confirmation. Okay, that's heartening. From NSSDC, mm -hmm. which have tried 
in a diminishing budget environment to provide this data to those of us who were pursuing interesting aspects to it. Um, when I when I returned, remember, I came back with some priceless original film that they had given us. And it was in the process that very night, that Friday night in November of, uh, I guess it was what, 90, what was it, 94, 95, 94 maybe. Mm-hmm. When... Um, I, I had to drive into Manhattan to pick up this stuff from the lab where it had been kind of transshipped up from Goddard. And that night on the phone, I told one of my colleagues that I felt we had a major insight into who was trying to suppress and keep this information from the American people. And that it probably was not government. It probably was a secret group within government between agencies that owed allegiance more to its own process than to its official uh, agency connections, i.e. magic, i.e. secret societies. And I specifically referenced Cooper's claim that Majestic 12 was really Magic 12. And I said Eureka because 12, of course, is one of these so-called magic numbers. It's hyperdimensional, among other things. Sorry. That very night, in New York, in front of the lab, all my material was stolen out of the car. The car was deftly broken into. Money that was in the front, you know, like for tolls and stuff, right. was untouched. But my suitcases with the film, with the slides, with the, with the hard copy, with the atlases, with the treasure trove of things that I had brought back, uh, from Goddard, that I, some of which I'd taken down to Goddard. All gone. All gone. And obviously I was very upset. And I had to do a presentation in New York two days later, and I was hard pressed to scramble among the spares and put together a credible visual presentation. Mm. So it's a Sunday morning. I'm standing up in front of these people at a hotel here in Manhattan telling them this sad tale when from the back of the room a voice speaks up and says Richard I think we found your stuff now remember we're in Manhattan there's 8 million stories in the naked city followed by 8 million lives right <laughs> the idea that somebody coming to my presentation two days after this event had happened could have randomly found Impossible. Was uh, I was I was, needless to say, reasonably astonished and impressed. Sure. So, it got even better. This individual turned out to be a friend of one of the staff people who lives in the back house in this compound here on the on the cliff across from from Manhattan. Um, and I had met him and his significant other at a couple of Christmas parties. So it wasn't even a total stranger. It was someone I knew. Mm. And the story they told me was that that Friday evening, which had been raining in Manhattan. Coming up on a break. How much time? Very little. All right. We'll finish it after the break. All right. All right, Richard. Uh, stay right there. Interesting story. It disappears and then reappears. And I believe there is a statistic 
that says, or at least it used to be true, that you are generally robbed or killed, murdered, by somebody you know. Now, that may no longer be true, but at one time it was. From the high desert, this is the truly independent CBC radio network. your call in order on the air. This is the CBC Radio Network. of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033. 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. Ah, uh, it is indeed the CBC Independent Network. <laughs> we own ourselves. Hey, everybody. Do you know that in America right now, 20 to 30 percent of everybody out there who wants a cell phone can't get one because they either have bad credit or no credit at all? Now I've got a big announcement to make. If you will go to my website, Pronto, right away, and go down to the um, Art Bell Radio Sponsors section and click on the Sea Crane Company. Finally, it's been a lot of work, but finally the Sea Crane Company has got a full website up and all of the things that we talk about on the radio, including uh, the Beijing Free Play uh, Radio, uh, including... Uh, the Sanjean line, and all the rest of these things. There are photographs up there for you to see. And, um, for example, you want to see the Beijing? Fine, go take a look. Just jump right over from my website. Uh, go to the sponsor area and click on the Sea Crane Company, and over you go, and you can see the Beijing Free Play Radio, one nineteen ninety five day by day now, because they're going to run out. It's a crank radio. You turn the crank on the side. And you turn it for 30 seconds, and, and it operates for 30 minutes. Not hyperdimensional physics, but not far off. Not free energy, but not far off. The closest thing I know of that is demonstrated in a real product. It's an amazing item. AM, FM, shortwave, eight bands. Oh, boy, does it ever work. And it's the quintessential emergency radio. When the power goes out, you go get the Beijing, and you're guaranteed to be receiving radio. The number is 
1-800-522-8863. That's 1-800-522-8863. The Sea Crane Company, don't forget their brand new webpage. So if you want to see before you buy, go to my website and then over to theirs. That's www.artbell.com. This you... is required reading for every American who has assets to protect. And the supply is limited. Remember, one 800 That's one 800 All right, my guest is Richard C. Hoagland, Engstrom Science Award winner, advisor at one time to NASA, science advisor to Walter Cronkite. And um, we are in the middle of something which we're going to have to finish, but I have just faxed to Richard, thank you somebody out there, and I, it's very hard. These doggone uh, web addresses have got to get better. But it looks like www.hfml.sci.kun. dot something nl or something hfml forward slash levitate dot html. Oh my God! You know, so who can follow that? But I'm going to get this web address straightened out. I just talked to Keith. You remember I was talking to you about uh, nuts and uh, frogs and things levitating, levitating in magnetic fields? Well, finally, finally, somebody sent it to me. I just faxed it to Richard Hoagland in Manhattan, and if Keith can find it based on this very obscure address, we will get a link up on our website. So you, too, can see it. I told you this story ran on CNN. I knew it. All right, back now to Richard C. Hoagland. Richard? Okay. Now, before I do this, Art, let me say, there are some people that apparently are slightly irritated that I take so long to get to the point. There are those. There are also millions of other people who know exactly what I'm doing. I know. This is a very complex matrix we're trying to understand. I know. And what I'm trying to do is give people a sense of the process. Because, look, I'm a voice on the radio. I could be saying anything. And there will be people who will believe me and people who will disbelieve. I know. What I'm trying to do is to lay a trail so other people can see the process that's gone into how we've arrived where we've arrived. And if some people are upset with it, I have a wonderful suggestion. Turn the dial. Put a pillow over your head. I know, I tell them that Get all the time. Get some sleep. I know. You don't belong listening to the Art Bell Show if you don't have any patience. All right, but I've I... been on this trail for 15 years, Art. I know. If I have to spend another 15 years, I will. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And the process, the journey, is as interesting as the destination. All right. Well, let us try and get to the destination, or at least as far as you've come so far. Okay. The reason that I'm telling you this story is it has a punchline, an astonishing punchline that had a profound effect on my thinking and the direction of this entire investigation. Because on this Sunday morning, two people in the back of the room that I had met a couple times at a party hosted by one of our staffers uh, claim that on that Friday night, two days before, when I had had my stuff viciously ripped off, just arrived back from NASA, primarily dealing with the moon. This was the stuff that came in from the moon, from NASA, that they had come out of a brownstone that night 
a few blocks away. Hmm. It was uh, stolen on 20th Street and 6th Avenue. They were down on 14th Street, just off 6th Avenue. Okay. That's not the interesting part. They came out of the brownstone, and there was a USA Today kiosk. You know how they sell newspapers in these little metal boxes now? We put a quarter in, you yep, yep, yep. tip the lid, okay. Out of the rain, underneath the USA Today kiosk, in front of this brownstone, were a set of slide boxes. And they noticed them, because they were right in front of the door when they came out. They reached down, according to their story, picked them up, and began looking at them and noticed familiar things and realized who they may belong to. What really struck me was when they told me what they were doing in the brownstone. Because that night was their monthly magical ritual to the full moon. Hmm. So I began very seriously wondering if somebody didn't want me to pay attention to this concept of magic. That in fact what we're dealing with is not a government conspiracy, but a conspiracy by a non-governmental group that transcends governmental lines, that owes its allegiance to something other than whoever pays the bills. And of course that led me in the direction of fraternal organizations, secret societies, and began an evidentiary trail and a learning curve that wound us up with a proof that we went to the moon according to the so-called right. magic Masonic pattern that traces all the way back to ancient Egypt. Egypt, I was going to say that, right. All That's right. why this process is critical. If you forestall the synchronistic events, if you are too narrow-minded, you have too rigid a set of blinders on, you will miss the data for the trees, mixing metaphors badly. <laughs> All right. Um, look, uh, you mentioned Hale-Bopp. You've left us hanging on that one long enough. How does Hale-Bopp become involved here? Okay. I don't know whether I want to do Hale-Bopp yet, because there's been so much noise about Hale-Bopp. Remember the show that you and I and Tom Van Flander did some weeks ago? Of course. Where we discussed what I believe is the real importance of Hale-Bopp. Yes. And I, and I advocated the possibility that this was an important messenger, an important celestial representative of the comet class. Yes. For reasons having nothing to do with Charles Schrammick and Saturn-like objects right, and all this. Right, 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 right. But I did, I asked Alan Hale about Van Flandren's um, ideas, and uh, he doesn't buy it. Well, uh, there is a picture on the web showing uh, Hale-Bopp fragmenting into six separate objects. <laughs> that was taken in the last few days. Uh, and I've really? got six sets of images of it. And we it's on your, it's just, on your website? We haven't put it up yet. You haven't put it up yet. Six no. separate objects. Six separate objects. And it's far from the sun. It's not going to reach perihelion, which is where the tidal forces would be maximized. Okay, you're not going Courtney on me, are you? I'm just telling you what this astronomer was able to photograph with a 16-inch telescope. What astronomer? Somewhere in Spain, I believe. And um, in the next break, what I'll do is I'll go over to our stack and I'll find out who the guy is and I will read you his website and everybody can log on and you can take a look for yourself. This is just old, ordinary, old-fashioned astronomy. The fact is that with a decent telescope, a 16-inch telescope and CCD technology, 
there are now six objects around the nucleus of Hale-Bopp, which is splendid confirmation of Tom's model. And the only reason I bring it up is because it should get better. If this, in fact, is a set of true observations, as the nights progress, these objects will drift farther apart. They'll become clearer in smaller telescopes, even in binoculars. Well, I believe we are about two days from the closest pass to Earth. That's right. All right. Now, let me tell you how I know this thing has been sent to us by somebody. Okay, right? please, by all means. Now, if you want to know how you do this, all right, let's start from the terrestrial perspective. Let's start from the perspective of whoever is flying these vehicles that were recorded on STS-48. Or, I've got a fax that came in here from Bob Thomas a few minutes ago. Art or Richard, please comment on the following. STS-80 report with video similar to STS-48. Could you forward this news to the list for me? Much appreciated. Signed, Bill Hamilton. Dear all, really? I just received video footage taken from the space shuttle Columbia, STS-80, which in some respects is more interesting than the previous SDS-48 footage and will be harder to explain away in terms of so-called ice crystals. Really? For about a four-minute interval, all kinds of anomalous objects traverse Earth above the clouds and out into orbital space. Hmm. One particular object appears to be a glowing disk that moves from right up the screen to about the center and then parts. A few seconds later, a second object bursts through the storm clouds below and starts trekking across the screen. Meanwhile, the first parked object begins to move back along the way it came, how's that for an ice crystal, and rises out of the Earth's atmosphere and looks like it comes up to meet a blinking object that seems to be moving in orbit. And I'd like to see that. Other objects are seen that are dimmer, and blinking objects are seen moving above the clouds, Fast-moving objects with tails, presumably meteors, are seen streaking every which way. Hmm. The STS-80 was in orbit 220 miles above the Earth and passing over areas of the Earth where there was a lot of thunderstorm activity on December 1st. This footage was recorded off the NASA channel, channel 22 in Sacramento, California, by my friend John Maxfield on December 1st. Last night I took this tape to Jim Delatoso at Village Labs in Tempe. You know Jim, right? Yes. And had him upload it to his computer for later analysis. He also made an SVHS copy from my VHS copy. Mm -hmm. We showed it to a producer from Strange Universe. I'm sure that everyone will get to see this fascinating footage soon. Damn, I had a producer from Strange Universe on the show last night. If I Also, only a copy will be sent to Dr. Jack Kasher, who yeah. evaluated the SDS-48 footage. Then we can await NASA's imaginative explanations. They will have to come up with more than just ice crystals for this one. Signed, sincerely, Bill Hamilton, mm -hmm. Assistant State Director, MUFON, Arizona. You know what's been going on in Arizona lately, I presume. I've heard rumors. I... Well, I can, I can give you more than rumors. Okay. You know, there there have been things in the Arizona skies, unbelievable things seen this by is thousands, thousands of people. Well, you mentioned uh, Bill Hamilton. He was one of the eyewitnesses to these things. Okay. Okay, just for the record. Okay. Well, the reason that this is relevant is because whoever's controlling these vehicles, my premise is it's us. It's a small group. Magic. Magic that have access to technology and information and are as black as you can get 
and are far removed from the honest folks at NASA and even the honest folks at the DOD or the NSC or the NSA or the CIA. In other words, what you have is a compartmentalized system that is transgovernmental. So what do you figure? Bill Clinton asked about it and they broke his knee or what? No, no, don't no, no, no. just such dumb okay. really art. Give me a break. I'm trying to have a little fun. Give me a break. Um, there, you're talking about an organization so deep, so dark, it's only half a joke, Richard, that the President of the United States wouldn't be aware of it. Maybe or maybe not. We will, we will, we will pursue the data and people can reach their own conclusion. My point is this. If this is a real technology, and we now apparently have an even better set of examples that I obviously want to see this footage, and it's under our control, meaning Homo sapiens sapiens on planet Earth tonight, yeah. even if a small group of them. Yes. If you gave me the car keys to one of these vehicles, and I'd invite you along, right? we could jaunt out to the Oort cloud. Let's presume there is an Oort cloud for the time being. We could find a nice iceberg, maybe 25, 30 miles across. Mm -hmm. We could then nestle up against it with our, you know, ultra-electrogravitic spacecraft. Yep. We could then gently turn on the power and nudge. Begin to push it like a tug. or uh, Like it, exactly, yeah. like a small tug with yep. Queen Mary. Across the river from me, there are huge ships, the QE-2. Okay. And, the you know, the aircraft carriers that come in and out okay, here. Okay, so where would we take it? What? Where would we take it? Well, what you would do would be with a set of computers, you would compute the vectors, the direction in space, and the magnitude of the force you would have to apply right. to change this little bergy bit's orbit from whatever it was before. Right. Circular. Billions of miles away from the sun, totally invisible to unaided human eye and or telescopes on Earth, to where it would begin a long fall toward the sun. And if you were as good at it as NASA has been at sending spacecraft all over the solar system yeah. for the last 30 years, you could, with that technology, adjust its orbit by nudges over a period of a few days or even weeks, such that it would follow a prescribed path exactly as you wanted. Creating a Creating comet. a comet. mathematical and geometrical message in the sky for those who know how to read the message. Okay, but why? Ah, the question is why. What, what, what Richard Hoagland is saying, for those, for, a minute. for those who don't get it, he's suggesting that somebody manipulated something from the Oort cloud into a specific orbit, in, in effect creating a comet, Hellbop. Am I, am I on track? Right, exactly. All right. Uh, furthermore, to send what, furthermore, no, no, let, let me finish the thought. All right. Furthermore, you would also, if you wanted this thing to be really, um, you know, a headliner. You'd want the world to know it was coming a long time in advance. Okay. So you would create an energy source. You'd leave something with it that would, you know, pulverize part of it and shake it up so that it outgassed and it created a cloud of ice crystals 650 million miles away from the sun beyond the orbit of Jupiter, far beyond where any normal process could mm -hmm. excite a comet even this big. Which it did. Precisely. Um, but why would you do this, Richard? Because you are attempting to alert. Again, this is a model. I'm not saying this is what's going on. 
It also depends who you are, what your agenda is. But let's assume that your agenda is to enlighten. Your agenda is to inform. But your agenda is to enlighten and inform kind of in the mode of the prime directive a la Star Trek, where you cannot interfere, but you can sure damn well lay down clues. And hope to God that somebody's bright enough to figure them out and put them all together. Which now, if that's what's going on, leads us in the possible direction of who might be doing this. All right, that's where we're going to hold it right now. We're at the bottom of the hour. And bless uh, Keith's heart, my webmaster, Keith Rowland. He has found the frog which learned to fly. Uh, The information I have just passed on to Richard Hoagland. And if you'll go to my website right now, you can go see it for yourself. God, I've been looking for this story ever since it ran. Seeing is believing. They have a, a frog levitating. Now, how in God's name can magnetism levitate a biological organism? Well, if you want to see it, it's on my website now. Under latest news and items, you go take a look. As they say in the article here, seeing is believing. And during the break, Richard can take a look himself. You're listening to the independent CBC Radio Network. This is TRN and CBC, Talk Radio Network and Chancellor Broadcasting Company, home of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Taking calls on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell. And my thanks to Keith Rowland, who lives the program the way I do, and he's right on it. We've got a link up there on my website right now to the frog which learned to fly. Go take a look. Pretty freaky stuff, folks, out of Finland. Magnetics one. Once again, to order, 1-800-642-7221. All right. Uh, back now to Richard uh, C. Hoagland. Um, Richard, I understand what you have laid out with regard to how it could be done. In other words, the creation of a comet. Um and I even understand your reference to Star Trek and uh, uh, all the rest of it, but it seems like an awfully convoluted process uh, to go through, and it's good theory. What yeah, but you, you see, you have to understand how, how secret societies work. And that gets us back into the, met, the real metaphysics of enlightenment. You know, we live in a culture. This this goes back to an earlier discussion we've had about boring people and having them turn off the radio and the dial and going somewhere else. Yep, yep, yep. We live in an instant gratification culture. I know. Well, we but we also that... we also in this case live in a culture where at 2 a.m. Pacific in about 20 minutes the Eastern affiliates begin to lose the show. Okay. 
okay. <laughs> well, then they'll have to pick it up on the, on the tape replay. You you know, know. The tapes are available. The you point know. is that real knowledge is not handed out on a silver platter. It's not on sightings. It's not on strange universe. You have to dig for it. And part of the pattern that after 15 years of doing this, I have discerned is that we have apparently two major forces. We have a camp that is out to suppress. Right. That is out to keep us in the dark, to keep us down on the farm. All right. To keep us thinking that CNN and NBC and ABC are all there is to reality. Yeah. Then we have another camp. And again, I don't know who's in which. And that camp is seeking to uplift and expand our horizons and enlighten, but they're damned if they're going to hand it to us on a silver platter. Why not? We have to work for I it. I mean, why, look, why, why look. do something as obscure as no, no, no. sending Art, a Art, comet our way? You're missing the point, all right? I, so far, it, yeah. It, it goes back to the idea of give a man a fish and he eats for one meal. Oh, no, I've got that. Give him a fishing rod. Right, then he eats for life. What you learn for yourself, what you figure out from your own consciousness, your own curiosity, your own intelligence, your own will, you own forever. It's yours. No one can take it away. Okay. That's why I refuse to be a guru, an authority figure. That's why I will bore people with process so they can do it themselves and make me obsolete. I am simply a person trying to find out the truth. But everybody listening to my voice can do exactly what we've done. All they have to really want is to want to know as much as I do, and then they can do exactly what we've done. Okay. There's you, no magic here. All right, but what, how about a little science? In other words, you, you've laid out an interesting scenario with regard to Hale-Bopp. Do you have one scintilla of, of hard evidence, or, or even less than hard evidence, that... That's I can't what believe you're setting me up like this. I'm, I'm, I'm just Do asking. Do you really think that I would have opened my mouth and gone out on this limb if I didn't? <laughs> no, I'm just trying to have you. <laughs> no, of course not. Go ahead. Okay. First of all, I have found the uh, fragmentation Hale-Bopp images. And Keith, if you're listening, they're at HB Magazine, which I presume is Hale-Bopp Magazine. Right. At com. There are a series of images taken by Michael... Palamiti, P-A-L-E-M-I-T-I, showing possible fragmentation of the nucleus. A series of six CCD images of Comet Hale-Bopp obtained by Michael Palamiti on March 8, 1997 at 10.50 Universal Time using the Palamiti Observatory's 16-inch, 41-centimeter F4.4 Newtonian reflector all right. Um, exposure times range from quarter of a second to half a second. This series of images shows the nuclear region divided into what appears to be four and possibly six individual nuclei. The Van Flanwern uh, model. The third and fifth frames have been processed using an unsharp masking function, that's a computer algorithm, to bring out the individual nuclei. Palermiti had first noted the nuclear region to be divided into nuclei on approximately February 4th, 97, then further subdivided into four nuclei on March 2nd, 97. He then noted six individual nuclei on March 8th, as indicated in the image above, but only four on March 11th, although poor to average weather conditions prevailed at the time. 
the much-reported ripple wave pattern emanating from the nuclear region is also noted on some of the images. No recent reports on the comet have alluded to fragmentation of the nucleus. Okay. But many more images taken at Palermiti in February and March clearly depict the phenomena described above. Signed, Carlos E. Hernandez. So, Keith, if you go to that website and put it up on our, and our website... You can do that. We can uh, find out from first and from an observer out there on the net, which is what the net All can right. do. All right, Richard. Now, now I've got to stop you. Fine. All, All right. right. You want so, the proof. So, in other words, you have um, given us some evidence that Van Flandren might be right about the nature of comets. Well, but, that but is the, a theory. That is a model. It's a theory right? a model. Fine. All right. It may be true, and this may prove that or, or go toward proving that, but it doesn't exactly. support the notion that intelligent something or another directed it. No, 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 no. The, 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 the two are not necessarily linked at all. All right? The thing that would prove that this is not a random astronomical, astrophysical occurrence, which, of course, everybody thinks it is, except for that tiny handful that think that a spaceship from Alpha Centauri is guiding it here and hiding behind it, all right, um, would be if we can find singular, unique, unusual parameters about this comet that simply are statistically overwhelmingly improbable from any natural model. Do you have that? Yes, we do. Lay it out. Let me start with the, with the most interesting. The comet is supposed to reach perihelion, which is the closest point to the sun, at 3.13 Greenwich time on April 1st, right? Okay. Okay, okay. so-called April Fool's Day. Right. When I learned that the comet was going to reach perihelion sometime on April 1st, I got suspicious. Now, the reason for this is not because April 1st is, a, is, is, you know, a fool on you, that kind of thing. You have to understand the historical legacy of why we have an April Fool's Day. It has to do with a change in the calendar. Okay, I'm restraining myself now. Several hundred years ago, there was a change from the uh, previous calendar to the Gregorian calendar, the one we use, mm -hmm. all right? And in the process of the change, Several weeks got lost, and people in Europe, particularly in France, got very upset and incensed. They thought that the church had taken time from them, <laughs> all right? Okay. Not realizing that your biological time is irrespective of the damn calendar. All right. And they got so upset that they started, you know, riots and, 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 and demonstrations, and people got killed over this. And so the April 1st period was the time when the, when the weeks disappeared, literally, into limbo. And so people who were operating on the old calendar and who didn't know that it was really the new calendar mm. would be caught by other people and be made to appear to be the April fool. Okay. So if we're dealing with a message model, the model is saying that something about time and about the calendar is critically important. If okay. Hale Bob was a carrier of this kind of information. So April Fool, uh, Fool's Day or April 1st is an important day numerically. Critically, yes, because what it says is it's later than you think. We think this is 1997, right? Yeah. In fact, it's not. It's about 2001. <laughs> 
All right. <laughs> now, there are certain calendars that are predicting certain events to come, that's right, right, Art? That, oh, yes. Well, that's implicit in this, quote, message. And again, it's just a model. So with that in the back of my mind, I'm looking at this uh, prediction for the perihelion passage, the closest approach around the sun by the comet, by Hale and Bob themselves in their book, which they published about a year ago, right? Mm-hmm. And they said at that time, based on the computer models and the observations, which were necessarily tentative, all right, that perihelion, the closest flyby of the sun, of the comet, at right angles to the Earth's orbit, 90 degrees, would occur at about 3.30 Greenwich time on the 1st of April. Right. So, as you know, I've got this handy-dandy computer program, right? Yeah. Which has allowed us now to pinpoint that all the Apollo landings take place under very suspicious circumstances connected to Orion and Egypt and the Masonic tradition, par excellence. Should not be, but it is. Fact. Totally unrefuted by anybody, because you can't refute it. The numbers and the pattern is there. So I ran the same program for hale Bob. And lo and behold, I'm sitting here looking at the screen. I'm looking at April 1, 1997, mm-hmm. at 3.13 a.m. And I'm looking at it from, guess where? Where? Helsinki. Helsinki? Helsinki. Now, the reason I chose Helsinki has little to do with the summit, which is being taking place there tomorrow and the next day. May I stop you for just one second? Yes. Uh, audience, uh, this is important. Go to my website. Keith heard what Richard said. I'm sitting here right now looking at this photograph of Hale-Bopp, which apparently shows, by my count, one, two, three, four, five, six, six pieces, Richard. Yep. I'll be damned. I've never seen a picture like this. Not from NASA, you ain't. Because NASA doesn't want you to know that comets are not what they have been telling us all these years. And in the message model, if Van Flannen is right, there is an implicit, overwhelming importance to figuring out what they really are and their real relationship to solar system and our terrestrial history. Well, I'll buy that. I'm going to have to get Alan Hale on. I wonder what he'd say about this. Well, obviously, what you want is other observatories putting photos on the net yeah. that confirm this. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, now, the fact that this guy has got six images, weird. and he's got other images in his database, and he's listed, the, in other words, that's the kind of thing that real science is, independent confirmation. So we need to track this down. Let me, let me, let me continue. So I ran where one would look at um, the comet from, from Helsinki, for reasons we'll have to explain after the next break, all right? There was, it was not a random choice, me picking Helsinki. It had nothing to do with the anti-gravity experiments. It had nothing to do with the flying frogs. It had to do with a first-person witness testimony that goes back hundreds, if not a thousand or more years, relating to the significance of Helsinki and Finland to some of the questions we have raised in our various discussions over the years. And I do find it interesting that all of this research, including this story on this, this frog levitating, again, comes from where? Yes. Uh, Finland. Yes. Finland. And uh, the anti-grav experiments, Finland. Yes, yes. 
Uh, so you're connecting all of this? Well, it will connect by itself. It's not that we're connecting. The data is converging. But I have been tracking on the significance of Finland and Helsinki for, would you believe, our 10 years. And after the break, I'll explain what I mean by that. This is not something I just thought up yesterday. But what I do, what I've tried to do in our investigation and try to get our other colleagues to do is to not go public with things that are not supportable until they mature. You know, it's the old, you know, Orson Welles line for, for Paul Gallo, we make no wine before it's time. Yes. You don't put the science out there until you can support it. Okay, I, I would like to congratulate Russell Seip, who must have had to swallow 25 or 30 times before he dared put up this six-pack picture of Hillbop. <laughs> and a lot of people who have listened for a long time will know what I mean by that. Um, it, this is incredible. Well, it could get more incredible because we're still weeks away from perihelion. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, by the way, typically, remember, I used to be at the Hayden Planetarium. I was in the heart of the Cohotec controversy, the so-called comet of the century, which wasn't, this is. Typically, comets don't fragment until they pass perihelion. They don't fragment weeks before they get to perihelion. May I ask a dumb question? Yeah. If it is now fragmented, which this picture would seem to indicate, yes. um, as it gets to its closest point to the sun, yes. could it then, could some of those fragments then be pulled out of their present configuration. Oh, they will. You know, they will slowly drift apart, and they may fragment into more fragments. Because remember what Tom's model is. That instead of dealing with one solid lump, a 25-mile chunk, yep. we're dealing with smaller chunks whirling around each other under mutual gravity, yeah. much like gnats around a uh, lamp in mm -hmm. the in the early evening. Mm -hmm. And that as these whirling fragments approach the sun, as their center of gravity approaches the sun's gravity, the, the sun's gravity will predominate over the individual fragments' gravity to each other. So they will wander off on their own, on separate orbits. And they will eventually draw far enough apart so that even with a relatively small telescope, you'll see empty space between them, a la... This set of photographs. Yeah, this set of photographs. Okay, I think, you know, that's pretty supportable. What you're saying there is pretty supportable. I mean, the but evidence see, is staring at right, it. if that's right, if that's right, Art, it is the single most critical observation to date of Hale-Bopp and all of comets in all of history. Except that it does not necessarily support the idea of intelligent direction. No, 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 not at all. No, no. But what it does support is that the comet formation process is not as NASA and the astronomical community have sincerely believed up till now. That in fact, if all these objects are whirling around each other and are drifting apart, not because they're torn from one solid object by massive tidal forces, you know. Well, Richard, you would have to imagine, though, that both could be right. Van Flandrin could be right in some cases, and... No, 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 because you're, you're misunderstanding what he's saying. The standard model is that comets are bits and pieces that didn't quite get it together to form a planet Yeah. in the snowstorm of the early forming solar system. Right. Then Flandern's model is diametrically opposed. He is saying that all these objects, asteroids and comets, are derivative of a gargantuan, massive, titanic, overwhelmingly catastrophic and tragic explosion of a planet 
with a fragment speeding outward in all directions from the center, right. like the Death Star scene in Star Wars. Sure. And that only under that set of explosive conditions, as the fragments are leaving the center of the tortured world, yes. can they capture each other? Yes. A few of them here and there. Yes, yes. But e this e whirling dance yes, of but death. But even with Van Flandren's model, there could be singular objects that, for one reason or another, oh, sure. did sure. not attract something else. So, so the problem is that you're never going to know the origin of the single objects, but the multiplicity of orbiting objects guarantees that Tom is right and the other guys are wrong. Because there's no way to get whirling objects all whirling around each other in the snowstorm model. Mm. It has to be the explosion model, the catastrophic explosion of a single world model. This is really an intriguing photograph. And why, that's why, why it's so critical to where we go from here. Why don't we have, by now, as close as Hale-Bopp is, why don't we have more photographs confirming what this seems to show? That's, that's a good a, question. Then. That's a damn good question, Art. That's why you get the big bucks. <laughs> well, so that's where you leave me with that one, huh? Well, I don't know. But you should pursue the question. There should be people out there listening to us who are crawling all over the web looking for other pictures and asking the people who are putting up the, the major websites, where are the other observations? If Palermiti is correct, I hope I'm not mangling his name too much, then... Similar photographs taken by other guys all over the world at the same time should show the same thing. But they don't. Well, do they or don't they? Well, not that I've seen so how far. How many are we seeing versus how many are submitted? Well, I'm, I'm beginning to get quite a few from amateur astronomers uh, now that it's close. I mean, I can go out with a pair of binoculars, and, and to me it looks like one hunko comet. All right. Well, but to the naked, in other words... Do you have to have really good seeing? Do you have to have really great desert viewing? Because is this close in around the nucleus? Which it would be. In other words, what's missing from this data is the scale of the pictures and the size in miles or in arc seconds or whatever of the individual fragments and how far apart they are. Hmm. So maybe not every telescope can at that moment have seen it, but as it gets closer, remember, closest approach to Earth is on the 22nd. Right. 22nd, 23rd. Right to Earth, um, that's in a couple of days. So now, this week and next week, we should get our best views, and this fragmentation will get better. They can never come back together, all right? So it can only get better. If it's fragmenting, it will be obvious to everybody in another week. All right. Uh, on that note, uh, we're going to have to end this hour, and I will take this time to say it's obviously going to be a five-hour program so, those of you who must leave, you can order tapes of this program by calling 1-800-917-4278. Let me give that to you again. Please copy it down. 1-800-917-4278. This is CBC. Are you comfortable?
Call Art Bell toll-free. West of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033. 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. It is, and we have two items up on the website of immense interest. Uh, one of them is rather difficult to get to, and I have a feeling we're probably swamping their uh, their page. We put a link into their page, and it's probably beginning to internally hemorrhage with a number of hits. But it is molecular magnetism and levitation, or the frog which learned to fly. It's all about a frog and actually other things that were levitated in Finland. And that's on my website now. The link to it, www.artbell.com, is where you want to go. And the other one is a new picture of Hale-Bopp, which seems to clearly show six separate orbiting pieces, which comprise what we are calling Comet Hale-Bopp. Put up there by Russell Seip, incredibly by Russell Seip. Somebody ought to ask him about for some comment about that. <laughs> Unbelievable. Richard Hoagland is my guest, and we will get back to him shortly. All right, now let's test Richard's sense of humor. This Richard is from a Ph.D. in San Diego, California, and it says simply, Dear Art, Richard Hoagland's emphasis upon the Finnish or Finland connection can mean only one thing. We are approaching the finish line. <laughs> ah, you do have one. That's good. <laughs> That's fantastic. And uh, then in, in parentheses, bottom it says, hail to the end of the age. <laughs> okay, guys, you're, you're sharp tonight. All right. Where were we? Uh, well... We were talking about Hale Bob. We were approaching the proof. Uh, the first, the first yes. level of proof. Yes, right? sir. Please. All right. Now, I've been suspicious, obviously, of this comet for a long time, but, but suspicions do not a summer make, right? And I have, right. you know, not basically said anything. Uh, unlike other people, you know, I've just kind of held my counsel and looked at the data. Yes. And it wasn't until the last week when things really fell into place. And I had reason to to do some calculations that I had no reason to do before because there just didn't seem to be any rational connection. Okay. But when I started looking at the at the perihelion time, and for a whole bunch of other reasons I'll get to in a few minutes, the Helsinki location in Finland, which is at 60 degrees 8 minutes north, in case anybody is wondering. The reason Helsinki is interesting is because 60 degrees is one of those magic tetrahedral latitudes that you get when you start placing those geometric objects inside planets. Mm -hmm. All right? You know, we start out with the simplest uh, uh, so-called platonic solid. I thought it was just 19.5. Oh, no, 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 no. There are others. It, it turns out that 19.5 is the most common one. But if you look at what we call the higher-order terms, there are other latitudes that also would be significant. Now, the only body in the solar system that evidences the kind of activity 
of the higher order terms that is readily accessible is this little moon around Jupiter called Io, not Europa, the inner orange volcanic moon spewing its guts out, turning itself inside out, deep in the gravity well of Jupiter called Io, the one that was found to be incredibly volcanic, more volcanic than the Earth when the Voyager spacecraft flew by back in 1979. Right. And I was at JPL, of course. It turns out that if you go to any astronomical uh, text, a really good one, uh, Patrick Moore's big, flat, coffee table kind of book is, is one that, that I used initially back in 88. It spits out the latitudes of the major volcanoes on Io. And that pattern of latitudes is precisely according to the higher order terms of the hyperdimensional model, which is putting the more complex platonic solids inside a sphere. Here's where people start going, huh? Well, all right. You know that you've got this simple pyramid, four-sided, four-cornered, called a tetrahedron. Yes. We've talked about it over and over and over and over again. Yes. If you put a tetrahedron in a sphere such that one of the points is on the spin axis, the north to south pole, the other three points are at 19.5 north or south latitude. Yes, sir. There are more complex, uh, what are called polyhedra, many-sided geometric forms that are symmetrical. There's the cube octahedron, there's the dodecahedron, etc., etc. If you put these more complex forms in a sphere, their vertices will touch the inside of the sphere at other latitudes. And one of those would be 60, 60 degrees. 30 that kind of thing. Okay, okay, so so one happens to fall at a Helsinki, and you, you find that. So, all right, so we've got the president and Yeltsin uh, meeting in Helsinki. Now, there's nothing volcanic going on in Helsinki, but the latitude itself, in other words, if we're looking at a political statement, yeah. which would take us back into history and why Helsinki got named where it is and all that, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. But what I'm trying to do without, without uh, you know, boring everybody with the details, which we can do in subsequent shows, once we've checked out a few more things, Helsinki was not a random thought. It also is almost due north of Giza. All right? I was in Helsinki. It was a beautiful city. I, what, what is special about it, Richard, other than, okay, it's at 60 degrees. Drill into my mind why they chose that as the site for the summit. Um... That's a speculation. It was ostensible. I mean, it's been the chosen the site for many summits and many international conferences. It is far more visible in the international field of diplomacy than Dayton, Ohio, for instance. Remember when we talked about Dayton? Yeah, of course. And but I, I, originally, this summit was to be held in Washington. That's uh, right. And, and then it got moved to Helsinki because Yeltsin was sick. That's right. And now Yeltsin's healthy. Well, but here's what's so interesting. If Yeltsin was that sick, why not go in Moscow? Well, that's true. Think about it. Now, it's not that, oh, you got to be on neutral ground and all that nonsense. I mean, these guys are, are beyond that. No, there true. is a significance to Helsinki that we have now discovered, which is so resonant to the big picture, what we are beginning to think has been going on for a long time, and how it is being resolved totally out of sight of television cameras, and the normal discourse of international events. Which you believe is what? Which we will get to. It's, it's not something I can do in one evening, all right? But I can lay the groundwork and give people 
information is to get their own data to support this. But let me let me get back to one major conclusion. So Helsinki is not a random choice. So I figured out where if I was standing, if, if you and I were to go to Helsinki um, in two weeks, yeah. April first, yep. when Hale Bop is zipping past the sun. Yes, sir. At three thirteen uh in the morning, Greenwich time. Yeah. All right, is when closest approach to the sun of Hale Bob is supposed to occur. Right. right? Right. At that precise instant, to the second, actually it's 313 and change, all right? Okay. I can tell NASA when the comet will reach closest approach. And it'll be interesting to compare with the observations afterwards to see what happens. Because at that precise instant, within Seconds of arc, which is a tiny, 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 tiny angle. Orion, remember Orion? Of course. Is precisely crossing the Nader Meridian. In fact, it is the lead star in the belt of Orion. Which means what? Which is, remember the meridian crossing of Orion in the Egyptian mythology is all important. Orion represents reincarnation, the rebirth, the beginning of the new cycle, the emergence of the phoenix from the ashes. It is the quintessential Christ before Christ, thousands of years before the Christ mythos, which the Western world lives by. The Egyptians were modeling their own idea of reincarnating, of rising from death to be reborn. And imbued Orion, Osiris, Apollo, this constellation called Saha in the, in the ancient Egyptian, with these attributes for reasons that are lost in the midst of time. Okay, Richard, let me... I'm not done yet. Well, I'm sure you're not. Because the other critical point is that this precise instant over on the northwestern horizon, Leo, remember Leo, the constellation of the lion? Yes. To the wall in Hancock is the Sphinx? Yes. The heart of the lion, which is Regulus, that bright star, is precisely 19 minutes, 31 arc seconds above the horizon, 19.5. All right, folks, what he's saying here... Really... Now, let me, let me, please let me finish, Art. All well, right. I thought that was it. No, it's right. not it. Notify me when that's it. I certainly will. Thank All you. right. Now, this object, Hale-Bopp, is supposed to have a period 4,200 years long. Right. Right? Right. All right, the way you calculate the odds of this being an accident is you take that number of years... Multiply it by the number of days in a year, by the number of hours in a day, by the number of minutes in an hour, and the number of seconds in a minute. That comes, for those folks who don't have ready calculators, to be 1.3 times 10 to the 11th seconds. That's uh, about 130 billion seconds. All right? Then you take the error which is four arc minutes from the meridian. And you divide that error in terms of the one hour, one, one rotation of the Earth clock into that huge number. And that gives you the odds that this is merely accidental. Because 
since the orbit of Hale-Bopp in the standard NASA model is just a happenstance, all right? Just a chunk of ice orbiting the sun, right? Yeah. For it to reach its closest approach to the sun precisely as Orion is on the meridian and Regulus, the heart of the Sphinx lion, is 19.5 degrees, 19.5 um, uh, minutes above the horizon. There's an obvious, incredible statistical improbability here, right? All right. People... It's an incredibly tiny fraction of time that this works. Yeah. Well, the odds against that happening turn out to be 325 million to one. Okay. Now, I will go, I will fly to, to, to uh, Vegas, all right? And if you will stake me 325 million to one and we go into Vegas, all right, would you, would you take those odds? Of course not. Vegas wouldn't be there if it took those exactly. odds. Exactly. But I Richard, would, uh, people, uh, now I've got to say something. I'm going to let me say something. This here. is a virtual certainty that this was designed and it's not the only example. I have more. All right. But can I say something? Of course. Thank you. People will accuse you of putting together, in other words, you can do that. You can say two people are coming together at this point on Earth. Um, and look where Orion is and match it up to wherever, to, to something else or to some degree point. In other words, they will accuse you of screwing with numbers and saying, what are the odds that this and this and this will happen all at the same time? And you're picking the things and then assigning numbers to it. You can play that game. Well, yeah, qualitatively you can play it, but in terms of the actual numbers, you can't. Because remember, the things that we've chosen here are not arbitrary. Okay, folks, so what Richard is really saying, uh, if you didn't understand all of that, it really goes back to what's at Giza in Egypt. And what he's telling you is that what was found that we don't know about at Giza is driving everything that's going on in the black programs, the things we don't know about, and, in fact, our government and other governments all are being driven by what was found at Giza. About right, Richard? About right. All right. Now, let me give you the second data point. Since this is so over... By the way, I didn't discover the 19.31 tonight, the 19.5 for Regulus, until literally when the show had started. I was sitting okay. here with a computer. We were in a commercial. Right. And I simply looked over, and I happened to notice Leo on the horizon. And I thought, holy cow. And I looked, mm. I, I did the program, and I measured the angle. And it's exactly that angle, 19 minutes, uh, 31 arc seconds. And that arc seconds will vary by a few arc seconds, depending upon the exact time of perihelion, which they don't give us closer than a minute. NASA doesn't give it to us closer than a minute. Right. 313. So, in fact, it could be closer than I'm calculating. The, 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 now, again, the odds of 325 million to 1 are for the Orion crossing. If I now factor in the regulus, the 19.5, mm -hmm. I have to back up the square one, do the odds separately, then multiply those two together. And I don't have time during the show, but I'll give you a, a ballpark estimate that it's a, like a billion to one. I mean, this quickly goes off scale in terms of being random. And the only rational explanation is that somebody has designed this. All right? Sure. Now, the next step was to look at the closest approach two nights from now to the to the Earth. Right. All right. So 
remember our favorite place in the solar system that we have done a lot of, of hours on your show talking about. Tranquility base on the moon. That's right. We know that tranquility was deemed incredibly important. We know that the whole Apollo program now was fiddled around to pick that piece of real estate on the moon on that afternoon of July 20th, which has incredible significance for Orion and Sirius and that what's called the Duat. Refer you back to Graham and Hancock, all right? Sure. So I'm sitting here, and we're in the show in one of our breaks, and I thought, wonder with. So I calculated if I'm standing at tranquility at the moment that with this comet two nights from now passes closest to the Earth, which is about uh, a little after 1 o'clock in the morning, Greenwich time on the 23rd, but on the evening of the 22nd for us here in New York. Right. Guess what is precisely on the horizon of tranquility at that precise moment? What? Serious. Serious, of course. Which is the key star in all of this. Because Sirius is Isis, Sirius consort of Osiris, Sirius is the, in essence, mother of mankind, all right, by, by metonymy. And Sirius was the reason we landed there, a la Apollo at Apollo 11. It was 19.5 degrees. In other words, Sirius also works two nights, uh, you know, or, or you know, two nights from now. Now, the odds against that being accidental, I could run, take another half an hour or so, and there'd be a lot of dead air. Yeah. The point is that this, these two data points, three actually, totally convinced me. Totally. There is no doubt. There's no room mathematically for doubt that this is designed. The question is, by whom? All right. Uh, and that is where the question shall remain for the moment. We'll come back and deal with more of this and what's going on in Egypt. We've got some news about Egypt that you may want to hear shortly. This is CBC. Hi, Rookie here. Listen, I recently took my car into Jiffy. Art Bell is taking calls on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell. God, I'll tell you, those with computers better get up to the website and take a look at this new photo of the comet. It's a mind-blower. Oh, my. And then the frog. Uh, absolutely unbelievable. All right, look, I've got a big announcement here. As you know, we're going on a cruise to Alaska. And boy, are we going on a cruise to Alaska. October 23rd, we're going to Alaska. October 1st, actually, October 1st, we're going to Giza. The Great Pyramids of Giza. Uh, that cruise is all booked. You can get on a waiting list. That's about it. Maybe you can go, maybe. And we're almost booked for Alaska. The 23rd. We meet in British Columbia, Vancouver. What a place. We get on board a brand new princess ship, brand new, called the Dawn. The Dawn Princess. And we sail the famed inside passage to Kachkin, Juneau, uh, uh, Skagway. 
then right on up to the towering face of the ice fields in Glacier Bay National Park in Majestic College Fjord. And then we go to interior Alaska. This is where the wimpy Alaskan cruises and the real ones are separated. When we get to Seward, we go to Anchorage, board the Princess Cruises luxurious Ultradome rail cars, and head on the Alaska Railroad to Denali National Park, and then Fairbanks. I mean, this is the trip of a lifetime, and guess what? They've got financing now. Yeah, there's financing. They call it the Love Boat Loan. I don't know a lot about it yet, but I just got word yesterday that that they can immediately, virtually immediately, finance you to come on this trip. It just happened, folks. So, look, um, the trip is about booked. You better jump on this immediately. East of the Rockies, call 1-800-633-2732. Let me give that number to you again. I hope you're jotting it down. 1-800-633-2732, west of the Rockies. It's one 1- 800-848-7120. That's 1-800-848-7120. Financing part of it is brand new. It's pretty cool. So uh, there you go. Richard Hoagland back in a moment. 50. Find out how it can be part of your IRA or retirement account. It's opportunity knocking again. 1-800-800. 444-1050. All right, in a moment, I've got a fax here from Ed Dames, Major Ed Dames, about Hale-Bob. Are you making? 6-0. And a brief detour, but not that far, uh, to the world of remote viewing and Major Ed Dames. This just cleared my fax machine. Art, as promised, here is a Hale-Bob spot report. One. In a process strangely similar to that of mitosis, in other words, biological cell division, the Halebot comet has recently split into two almost equal asymmetrical parts, A and B. Two, Halebot A will undergo a radical change in trajectory, turning away from Earth. Hale-Bopp B will continue along an Earth, uh, uh, that was, uh, I'm sorry, Hale-Bopp A will undergo the radical change. Hale-Bopp B will continue along an Earth-grazing trajectory, possibly affecting minor geophysical change. There is a form of intelligence, get this, there is a form of intelligence associated with this astronomical phenomenon the nature of which SciTech has yet to establish. Technical remote viewing is continuing. Signed, Ed Dames. Richard, uh, you're back, back on the air again. Hi there. Hi. Would you like a one-word reaction to that? Sure. If bunk. It, if it, if it, if it, bunk, huh? In fact, total bunk. Well, you know what? Look, Ed Dames has tried to get me to spend money on his remote viewing for years. Okay. He sent all kinds of people years ago to try to get me to use him to remote view Sidonia. And I kept turning him down because it will not work. The major falsity of remote viewing is if we're dealing with extraterrestrial intelligences, uh-huh. the first thing you learn in military school, you know, spy 101, 
is protect your lines of communication. If someone doesn't want us to know the truth, then obviously they can feed you through this technology false information par excellence, and you'll never figure it out. The numbers don't lie. All right, well, I will... If you follow the numbers, if you follow the trajectories, if you follow the pattern, forget trying to figure out the motives yet. Okay. Just look at the pattern. Yes. The pattern can be counted upon because the pattern is reconstructable by anybody. All right, all right, but I, Richard, I will, Richard, Richard, I will yeah. say this, all right, and at least give him this much. For months and months and months, maybe better than a half year, he has been saying what he said in point three here. There is a form of intelligence associated with this astronom astronomical phenomenon, the nature of which they don't yet understand. But, but you have said the same thing. Yeah, I'm saying somebody sent this object, nudged it on the right trajectory, to give us a lesson in history, which now is bringing a lot of separate pieces of data together, which I intend to do myself in the next few minutes, all right? All right. Why am I intrigued with Hale-Bopp? Other than this is incredible coincidental geometry and celestial mechanics, and it obviously can't be coincidence. The reason is back to the Van Flandern model. For the last 15 years, as you know, we've been trying to figure out Sidonia and then the moon, and from this we're led to this physics, this hyperdimensional physics, which turns out to be a rediscovery of the work that Maxwell and his colleagues, Lord Kelvin and others, were proposing a century ago, right. which would have led us in some stunningly important directions. Ultimately, this is a physics that can literally push planets around, move worlds, reorder stars. I mean, there's no limit to what this can do. So why don't we have it? Because we went in another direction. For some reason, and there are a number of physicists who are now beginning to discuss among themselves, there's a book called The Vortex by two young physicists out of England that I just uh, got a copy of. They're beginning to wonder why we took this, this weird turn, why we aren't much farther down the hyperdimensional road that Maxwell and others were starting us upon than we are at this present moment tonight. The answer seems to lie in that someone or something does not want us to have at our disposal these kind of capabilities. Best guess, why not? Well, because it's like giving, you know, H-bombs to 10-year-olds. This is powerful stuff. This can literally rip apart worlds, as apparently, if the Van Flandern model is pursued and turns out to be correct, someone did. Now, let me tell you where our knowledge base lies tonight. The reason that I'm so intrigued with Hale-Bopp as a possible message, as a possible vehicle of, 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 of enlightenment, of information, a mechanism to decode more of our own past. If we're correct, if Van Flanagan is correct, and a planet was blown to kingdom come by intelligent, and that's an oxymoron, forces circa 65 million years ago, which of course did in the dinosaurs, all right, then the effects of that destruction of a major member of the solar system we are still living with. In our model, the shattering of that planet and the spewing of the, of the ejecta out into the outer reaches of the solar system resulted in such a change in the overall configuration of the rest of the planet, in their hyperdimensional relationship to each other, 
that it began a series of physical processes that ultimately have led to a series of catastrophes for the various planets of this sun. Now, that would be a kind of an academic point were it not for the fact that we live on one of those planets, which is why I went to see the Hopi elders a couple of years ago right. and have taken a deep but very quiet interest in this whole idea of global cataclysmic catastrophe. And I'm intrigued as heck with the fact that we now have a physical model which can give us a mechanism for this kind of a massive change. And we also apparently have visible embers of the beginning of such a change which somebody wants us to pay attention to. Begin to see how the threads draw together. But we have to do our homework. This is not being handed to us on a silver platter. This is not somebody sitting in a darkened room saying, oh, I see this, I see that. This is hard science. This is going to require testing, observation, sifting right. of a vast range of material, including a vital new aspect of our own research, which is the ethnography. This brings me now to Helsinki. Because what we now have from Helsinki, which I've been quietly working on for about 10 years, uh, a little bit after I started looking at the Mars data, I realized that if this data was true, if we were looking at artifacts left in the solar system by somebody, right. the odds were that it probably was us. It wasn't aliens. It wasn't boogeymen out of the whatever. It was probably a facet of human civilization in a bygone era with which we had lost complete contact. And that, of course, completely flies in the face of the Victorian model that we're the best and the brightest and the smartest kids on the block. This unending line of progress that we've been sold, that we're all there is and we're the epitome of everything that ever was. Right. Well, the shattering thing to the human ego is if we're barely climbing back after thousands of years from some global catastrophe. And we're not as smart as the guys before us and the guys before them and the guys before them that also went through this wrenching, shattering catastrophe and each cycle tried to build back and put together the pieces of who it was and what it is doing in this place before suddenly, out of the blue, whatever happened, happened again. Now, logically, you'd expect if that model has any reality, then the guys that went before might try to leave the guys that were going to come after a set of clues. A, that it was going to happen again, and B, what might be done to avert it. To avert it, yep. All right? That's what we've been quietly working on. Are there any realistic clues? And I must tell you that there is a book, which I found uh, by happenstance, by John White, called Pole Shift. No. Now, John White has rejected his thesis in his own book for reasons that I have found increasingly intriguing and curious. Because what John himself does not know is that in his own voluminous research in that book, not in the psychic stuff, not in the airy-fairy stuff, but in the hard science stuff, the stuff from the U.S. Naval Observatory that he reports, there is a vital clue to the physics and the process of a polar alteration. All right. My understanding of a pole shift uh, is that if it occurred, A, it would occur very quickly. Yep. Uh, B, 
it would produce geologic changes, winds in the area of 800 miles an hour possibly, yep. uh, virtually erasing most vestiges of any civilization, even industrial, that might be present. Yes. And any artifacts. Yes. Certainly any evanescent artifacts like wood frame houses and steel skyscrapers. Certainly gone. Yeah. However, man-made mountains might survive. Might? Man-made mountains, i.e. pyramids. Or Massive, mega architecture, millions of tons of limestone sure. carefully stacked in precise geometrical and coded mathematical configuration. Maybe, maybe even faces on Mars designed to be seen from space. So. Well, but that's on the another world. And I know. We don't, we're, we're only <laughs> thinking about the Earth right now. Okay. Because right? that's where we are. So working on this model quietly, you can imagine how intrigued I was that Graham Hancock, who I'd never met, is reading our work and is thinking along parallel lines, and he and Baval and I really now seem to be coming down to the, um, pardon the pun, finish line. <laughs> All right? And we now have a date when this last major catastrophe appears to have overtaken a much more sophisticated humankind, the last cycle, the last era. When do you think that was? Well, 13,000 years ago. Now, that is not a random number. That turns out to be quintessential in the hyperdimensional model, in the astrophysics, in the celestial mechanics of the Earth, the so-called processional cycle. And when you begin to look at the solar system as an integrated system, where the spinning and whirling and orbiting of all these masses in the hyperdimensional uh, level, at the level of the ether, has an effect upon each and every other body, together, synchronized, like, like a watch, like a well-oiled watch, except it's not well-oiled. It's a watch that's progressively out of tune. It's a machine that is increasingly in dissonance, used to be in resonance. Then you took out a major player, a major planet, bang, blew up one day, 65-plus million years ago. And that has had a shattering effect on the wholeness of the rest of the system ever since. And the system in this model has been getting progressively out of tune. Now, if you were either a fragment of the human family that was not trapped here when this catastrophe took place right. and was living on some other star system or had colonized the nearer parts of the Milky Way, or you were a friendly alien species that simply didn't like to see people periodically destroyed en masse, maybe, just maybe, you'd figure out a way to tell those folks down there something of their own history. But suppose there's a precept that you can't hand it to them on a silver platter. You've got to give it to them in a form that when they figure it out, they own it. It's theirs because there's this enormous roadblock called academic institutional science against accepting any new thing unless it comes from the ground up, unless it's born of and bred of the human consciousness process itself in and of the culture. And here is where Richard Hoagland meets the metaphysical. No, it's not really metaphysical. Well, it's it really is. Dealing because dealing with it, astrophysical stuff that can be measured, that can well, be replicated. But, but it, that is where we enter the realm, in a sense, because you're talking about an enlightenment uh, that has to be realized through virtually symbology. Well, but we also know there is now, and I'm, I'm learning more about it every day, and I'm meeting more people who are part of it. You know, you'd be amazed at the number of people who are part of some damn secret society. 
No, I wouldn't. And what's really intriguing, Art, is when you start to look at what these people hold near and dear, their most sacred inner traditions that they think nobody else knows, they all turn out to be the same traditions and they all turn out to be tetrahedral, i.e. hyperdimensional. Reduced to their, even to the clothing they wear, the secret handshakes. I mean, it, it's, it's getting exquisitely confirming that someone has tried at many different levels to pass this information on and preserve it within the human family here on Earth. So that brings up Finland again, Helsinki. Okay. Because in this model, if after the planet was blown to kingdom come millions of years ago, the metaphorical, if not physical, shockwaves are echoing down the halls of time, and periodically, for reasons that I don't have time to get into tonight, the Earth has to kind of readjust itself to allow for increasing dissonance in the system, mm -hmm. increasing disharmony yes. at the level of the physics itself. I think it's observed in what I call the quickening. That's mm -hmm. exactly right, because yeah. the thing which kills us off also makes us smarter, and it's a race between getting really bright to figure out what to do versus staying dumb and letting it happen again. A death and a birth. And, and Exactly, and someone has left us clues. Now, when you read Baval and Hancock, what they have figured out from the Egyptian text is that there is an actual body of folks, real guys, called the followers of Horus, who, if you read the text closely, after the catastrophe, took it upon themselves to rebuild that which had been lost. Now, imagine the intestinal fortitude, the moral certainty, the level of integrity required to plan not for two years mm -hmm. or four years, the election cycle, or 20 years, a generation, but for thousands of years, a small group of, think of them as priests or monks or initiates or whatever, pass on from father to son or daughter to mo mother to daughter or whatever. Guardians. Guardians. Building because they have preserved a stash of information from before the catastrophe. And they then try to feed back at some level information at what they think is the appropriate time to help this process of re-civilizing a bunch of savages gone wild in the wake of an awful catastrophe that we can only imagine. And then you have to get to where would this group have started from? The trouble with this whole model, to use your words, or your word, is that if this incredible information existed, instead of guarding it through generations and guiding it, mm -hmm. you would present it um, as the Holy Grail. Here it is. You want to avoid catastrophe? On a world scale, we can do it. Here's the information. Why keep it secret? Why have a secret little handshake and a cabal to, to guard this for generations and try and gently move us towards some sort of resolution? Why not just... Well, because as with all of the things human, what starts out with the noblest of principles decays in and of itself. <sighs> and it becomes only empty ritual. All right. Um, the folks who practice it have forgotten themselves what it was supposed to be for. All right, Richard, hold tight. We'll be back to you, and we are going to go to the phones next hour. Art, I managed to get to your website and to the links concerning the frog and hail bop. Yikes. The ramifications of levitation of biological beings are tremendous. I suggest you go up to the website and take a look, too. This 
is CBC. This is Healthy. Call Art Bell toll free. West of the Rockies at 1 800 618 8255. 1 800 618 8255. East of the Rockies at 1 800 825 5033. 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. Good morning. My guest is Richard C. Copeland. And we are talking of many things, and we are going to get the lines open shortly and let you talk to Richard. It has been absolutely a fascinating night, hasn't it? 863 1-800-522-8863. Back now to Richard C. Hoagland. Richard, um, I would like to be able to get some uh, phone calls and questions for you uh, before the show ends. Can we do that? Uh, maybe and maybe not. We've got a little more ground to cover here because I want to bring some things together because I've left some loose ends, all right? All right, so a tie... loose ends. All right, tie them up if you would, please. See, we can do it in a week or two when more data points come in. We can do another show where we take mostly questions. I, I hear you, but I want to get some in tonight. I want, they're dying. I mean, all the lines. Oh, you know, you know. They're dying? Well. <laughs> Gosh, Art, your audience is going away. Where do no, we leave all, off? All the lines are full. I just want to be able to answer a few of them. Where do we leave off? Oh, uh, the idea, you can't somehow bring yourself to quite believe that there can be a core group that might be doing this, and it devolves into all this weird kind of ritual. Symbo symbology. Right. In other words, grab it, uh, be enlightened, uh, understand slowly but, what's happening. But, but keep in mind that there is a tremendous body of academic study, all right, in our era, that says that this is what happens to human culture over and over and over again. And let me let me give you, let me give you an example. All right, during World War II in the Pacific, the Western white guys, us, for the first time, landed on all kinds of atolls and islands, my father included. All right, and in an effort to stave off the the incursion of the Japanese, right? Because my dad was at Guadalcanal. Yes, I know. Okay. And what we did is we brought in ships and men and supplies, and we, we overnight transformed these isolated, in some sense, idyllic paradises into bustling metropolises in the middle of a vast ocean. Yep. And then the war ended. Yep. And all that had come with that in, incredible activity suddenly went away. Yes. And in the wake of the disappearance of us white guys, many of the islanders created effigies, symbols of the planes and ships. They put planes, you know, biplanes up on cliffs in an effort. They were called cargo cults. 
in an effort to symbolically lure back, to make happen again through the outward form, the substance of what had taken place and had made them briefly very well off with our, a lot of material goods. Our magic. Yeah. It was a, it was a magical ceremony. Now, if you look at the history of magic, you know, which is basically trying to, with will and symbols, make the universe do what you want it to, it's a very ancient human trait. We see evidence in caves. We see evidence in modern so-called primitive societies. We see evidence on Madison Avenue. Yeah, I, mean, I, I follow the thread. All right. My, my point is that if you're looking at something so overwhelmingly horrific as the destruction of most of humankind and eradication of all culture and a tiny band of civilized folks with technology left in the middle of desolation trying to enlighten their brethren as to what civilization can someday be again, what one can easily imagine, and there's some excellent stories and novels out there. The Earth Abides by George Stewart is I've one read it, yes. that, that a brilliant, wonderful, evocative book about how difficult. Remember how he, they thought optimistically it'd be like you know a few weeks and then a year or two and all that. Yes. And by the end of the book, it look it's obviously generational. Yes. And the trappings, those bridges, which I lived near. I never thought when I read the book, which I read in Washington when I was outside. Uh, working for NASA, that I would someday live in Berkeley and I would go across back and forth to the city over those bridges. And those bridges became the symbols mm -hmm. of the persistence of the human spirit in the face of overwhelming tragedy to rebuild and to rekindle and to go on. And it's a, it's a stunning book, and that's in microcosm what we're talking about here. But how do we know, Richard, sticking with your model for a second, that there have not been an endless chain of times that humanity civilized has come and gone with the same stupid little secret cabal trying to give hints and uh, little hints and uh, symbology to to those who were uh, civilized well, to see, do this or else, and they didn't get it, and so they died. I, I understand exactly where you're going, yeah. and, and 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 the danger of secret knowledge. All right, is that ultimately it winds up being possessed by only a few. Right. And it winds up being passed on to an initiated uh, inner circle. Right. The chosen ones. Right. And everybody else, you know, the devil with the hindmost. Right. And unfortunately, maybe we're seeing that de degradation again. Yeah. Which is why it's important to to democratize this and get it out in the open so we all can figure out what we're dealing with and do something. And that's what this investigation is dedicated to. Well, I am if, not championing the if, cause of if, secrecy. You know, if in the, in the end you're right, mm -hmm. they'll kill you long No, they will not. Sure they will. No, they won't. Sure they will. I'll tell you why they won't. Why? Because if that were to happen, then a whole bunch of people were sitting out there listening to me and saying, oh, come on, would suddenly get very interested. And the last thing you want is for a whole bunch of folks in the, were, in the era of the Internet to get very interested in anything. They killed Kennedy. But Kennedy was 30 years ago, all right? And we have progressed light years culturally, globally. Beyond, remember, the Cold War is gone. The evil empire is gone. Mm. There is a brilliant object out there tonight that is coming on a timetable that somebody has set on a course 
to tell us some important clues. Now, let me tell you how it impacts immediate history, all right? Because I've now run the same calculations for the summit. Guess what? What? <laughs> the summit takes place, all right, uh, tomorrow night, begins, at precisely the equinox, when the Earth's axis is at right angles to the sun, and Orion and Sirius are straddling precisely the meridian, due south on the meridian from Helsinki, and Hale-Bopp is standing in the western sky at precisely 90 degrees to the Orion-Sirius connection, the Duat. And the summit was slipped by one day, was it not? Um, I think so, And yes. why was it slipped? Because something happened to Bill, right? The knee. Yeah. Well, let me now put a few threads together here. Um... And I have to pick my words carefully because we don't have a lot of time and i got to do this very judiciously. About ten years ago, I was invited to participate in an archaeological expedition in, of all places, Finland. Hmm. And I was invited to put in money and to receive information in return for my, you know, largesse, helping with a number of other people, hmm. fund an excavation of a site on a private farm outside of Helsinki. And I hadn't a clue as to the significance of any of this, except for one datum that struck me even then. This was in 1988. We had just figured out the geometry of Sidonia, and we had just connected it with the um, uh, hyperdimensional uh, tetrahedral model. And the location of this proposed ancient archive of ancient stuff was at one of those key latitudes, 60 degrees north of the equator, almost due north of Giza. Uh -huh. And for that reason, I persisted. I got very intrigued. Well, due north of Giza would be uh, Helsinki. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, we put in three or four thousand dollars and the folks involved in the project kind of all disappeared and except for some video nothing ever came of it that's ten years ago because of events that have happened in the last couple three weeks I have now gone back and I have reviewed all those tapes which are the tapes of an etymologist reciting a family history from Finland which was made public for the first time in 1984. And in a future program, we will get into the details of this saga. But what I discovered literally this afternoon is that in the 10 years since I became involved and began looking at this as possibly a link to the data on Mars, in terms of a terrestrial connection, in terms of a repository of something before a proposed catastrophe. Which Arthur C. Clarke now says he doesn't believe, by the way. That's right. But why has Arthur changed his mind when there's no new data? I don't know. Okay. I have found that there is a website at a major university providing all this information in written form. And that that website, after years of inactivity, 
suddenly on the 13th of March was updated and will be updated again tomorrow. And what we're going to do is we're going to provide a link through our site at Enterprise Mission to this site. And we will provide details, we'll provide background, we'll provide photographs. To, in a nutshell, encapsulate what I'm trying to say is in this family history, which has been passed down in this family, unbroken for at least the last thousand years, and we suspect it's much longer, is contained the representation of the history of mankind since the catastrophe which destroyed the planet Van Clattern is talking make about. some good reading. Well, it's a hell of a read. Yeah. <laughs> but what's really important is that the numbers and the correspondences to the physics and the history we have begun to figure out seem to be there. And what this history does is to make critically important the spot of land on which was ultimately built and established Helsinki. And it basically says that those people in Finland and in the Nordic lands, of which my own ancestry comes from Sweden, were the survivors of the catastrophe that wiped out most of the rest of the world and from which the rebuilding came forth, including expeditions to Egypt and the construction of the time capsules we think of as the pyramids on the Giza Plateau. And the cross-correlation of the ethnography and the amount of scholarship that is now being brought to this is the only reason I'm even mentioning it, because it's beginning to tie together. Now, let me propose to you the following idea. All right, and then, please, you've given them so much to chew on, Richard. Let them ask a few questions. Well... These are the final connecting threads. Okay. If there was such a thing as a global axis tilt, yes. which would be the whole axis in inertial space in our physics, like an atom flipping, all right? Not the crust sliding over the core, as Hapgood has proposed, but the whole axis tilting gotcha. suddenly in the period of 24 hours, right. one rotation, right, to a new angle relative to the sun and right. its own orbit. Yes. The resultant catastrophe in the geology, winds, waves, all that, we are, 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 are well modeled by uh, a John White book, all right, and many others. It is most likely that the only survivors of such a catastrophe would be seafarers, either in ships or in submarines. Water world. The Navy. Yeah. The Navy, the Navy right. of the world, whatever navies you can imagine, whatever civilization there is going or has been. Remember the Phoenicians in recent history? Sure. The seafarers that spread culture around the world, if sure. we can believe Barry fell? Yep. We have maps from Hapgood, the so-called maps of the ancient sea kings. Yes, sir. I know about those. If there was, and I know the Air Force at Westover Air Force Base where I used to live, checked them out in the 60s and were saying, you know, Charlie, you're on to something, all right? There's something here that's kind of bizarre. It doesn't fit. And the consensus was then and is now that those maps are derivative of much earlier maps from a technology 
that was not equal until the 18th century, a global waterborne civilization. Now, if we're imagining such an extraordinary catastrophe, then what do you have on every ship? What is the absolute essential to be a decent submariner or mariner? What do you have to have with you? Navigation. Maps. Maps. Exactly. Navigation, yeah. Which means that if we're left with any actual physical traces of that before time, the mariners would be the ones most likely to have the, 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 the navigational uh, cartography of the world the way it looked before the, the shift, before no the film. No question, yes. Okay, now we fast forward the film. Remember Bill Cooper. Remember him saying it's Magic 12. Yep. Remember the origins of the U.S. Navy. All right? Remember John Paul Jones. Does the word Scottish right mean anything to you, Art? Vaguely, yes. I'm Scottish right Scot Mason. Scottish John right, yes, Paul no. Jones was right. a Scottish right Mason. Right. The founder of the modern Navy was part and parcel of an ancient tradition that we can trace back through ancient Egypt and who knows before, and it connects to this familial legend. The originators of the legend appear to have been ancient, ancient seafarers, the old navy That's of the time sure. that went before. I can imagine that. So imagine the night of Thursday, March 13th. I'm standing here, here in Weehawken, and I'm doing something incredibly mundane. All right? I'm doing something actually at the sink, I believe. And there's a TV on, and I can't see the TV, and suddenly a commercial comes on. And it says, and the winner is Magic Goes Home. Call Old Navy. <laughs> All right, hold it right there, Richard. Uh, when we come back, we are going to make Richard answer some phone calls. <laughs> and I want to thank all of you who have been patient on the lines. We are going to get to a few phone calls. We'll lay out all of this a little bit later. From the high desert, you're listening to the independent CBC Radio Network. A little new bumper music for you. is TRN and CBC, Talk Radio Network and Chancellor Broadcasting Company, home of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. The Talk Station, AM 1500 KSTP. Buzz, hey, anybody sitting with you? 74627, you've got nothing to lose but the fat. All right, uh, back now to Richard C. Hoagland. Richard, you've given these people enough to think about for 100 years. No, we're not done yet. Um, there, there's something now that you have to do. Um, all right. Please. I want you to dial the following phone number and put it on the air. And I want everybody within the sound of our voice to do the same thing. If you miss it, and we're going to play it a couple of times. If you miss it, you can do it yourself. All right? Do you have a pencil? Uh, I've got a pencil. 1-800. All right. 
Old Navy. What are the numbers to that? I don't know. I don't have the phone in front of me. <laughs> do you have a phone in front of you? Uh, yes, I do, but every line is jammed with people wanting to ask you questions. But you must have a line that goes out. Let me try. Let's put it on the air. Let me try it. 1-800-OLD-NAVY, huh? Old o Navy. O-L-D-N-A-V-Y. Right. Um, N-A-V-Y. All right. Um, hold on. Okay, We're, I'm going to try Thank this. Thank you for calling Old Navy Clothing Company, and welcome to a whole new way of shopping for your family. Is that the one, Richard? Thanks. Yep. Paper Are you ready. recording? Short-sleeved plaid shirts for men are the item of the week. Just sixteen fifty, regularly nineteen fifty. Limited to supply on hand through March twentieth. I'm doing a commercial. Richard. For your nearest store locations and phone numbers, press one. Okay. For information about payment methods. That's it. That's it. All right. Now, what you just heard is an interesting code. Did you recognize anything? Old Navy. Yeah. Let's start. All right. What was the second part of the code? Short-sleeved Scotch plaid shirts. Yeah. And they were marked down to sixteen fifty from what price? <laughs> I didn't get that. Nineteen fifty. Nineteen fifty. Nineteen point five. Uh, okay. Yeah, now, I get the numbers. Okay. Now the Scotch plaid refers to the Scottish right. All right. Yeah. So what I did is I took the 1650 as Greenwich, as Zulu time. Yeah. And the sale is from now to the 20th, right? Yeah. The 20th, of course, is the equinox. So I input all this to the computer, 1650 Greenwich time, Helsinki. And, of course, Orion and Sirius are on the meridian, Hale-Bopp is 90 degrees, and it's precisely at sunset. Mm. Now, here's the test. I believe that something happened the evening of the 13th and the morning of the 14th, and that what this is and was was a call to the inner circle, magic, go home, because that was the code in the commercial, which only ran twice nationwide on NBC. All right? Old Navy is a derivative of the Gap chain. All right? There are several hundred stores around the country. They are losing money. All right? They are losing money big time. Did you ever watch The Man from Uncle? Yeah. Remember how you would get down to control? You would go into this little dilapidated dry cleaner store, and you'd go past the guy at the counter, and you'd pull the third coat rack from the left, and you'd go down in the elevator? Yeah. All right. What I want the folks within the sound of my voice to do is to go, you know, Call that number again, 1-800-OLD-NAVY. Find the nearest Old Navy store to your location yeah. and show up tomorrow, the 20th. Now, take a tetrahedron or an equilateral triangle, go to the store manager and say, we're here for the meeting, and see what happens. Okay. Now, in order to do this, you have to really want to know. Uh-huh. This is what's going to happen, Art. If I'm right, 
thousands of people all over the country who are not part of the inner circle, yeah. who simply show up and do this, are going to throw the absolute Jesus. Well, of course, if you're wrong. Into the inner circle. If I'm wrong, nothing will happen. All right? But the fact is, it's time for the secrets to end. It's time for the codes to come out. It's time for us all to share in whatever is going down. All right. Uh, you've got it out. Can I answer? Can I go through these people? I've been waiting. Sure, sure. All right. Uh, wild card line. You're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hello. Good morning, Mr. Bell. This is Robert in the San Joaquin Valley, California. Yes, Robert. Uh, Mr. Richard C. Hoagland, it's a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Uh, this is more fun than the barrel of monkeys. I'm having a lot of fun with this. I am a scientist. I'm greatly involved with many of the things you're talking about tonight. And uh, I would like to mention to you a couple of things. I've listened to Mr. Bell's show for quite some time, and I listen very intently, and I talk to many of my scientists' friends. Uh, on his show, one of his shows of the past, talking about the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, below the ground, uh, below the pyramid, uh, from 260 feet and two-and-a-half uh, football field lengths is supposed to be other buildings. That was talked about a long time ago. All right, so you're going to have to get to the point. Well, I'm wondering if, because I believe on one of the past shows, Mr. Hogan had mentioned about um, metallic objects, other other items. That's one point that I wanted to bring up. All right, well, I'm not sure what the point was, but uh, Richard, uh, there is news from Egypt. Uh, yes, there is. And you've got, what, a videotape on the way or something? Well, I have a line on a video. There is a tremendous price attached to this, which is some measure of its potential importance. When I come back in maybe a couple of weeks, uh, there are some meetings going to take place with people I cannot name in terms of Giza, in terms of excavation, in terms of what's been going on there. We have not dropped the ball. Just because we don't mention something doesn't mean we're not working on it. Right. But this is extraordinarily delicate, all right? Extraordinarily delicate. Um... That will be part of a future program, and there will be an update, and we will have new, solid information. That's all I can say right now. Okay. Should I treasure my newly uh, autographed and framed picture of Zahid? Oh, absolutely. Which says, thanks for all your help, Art Bell? Incidentally, um, you know we were invited for August uh, coming up this year to the uh, ARE conference in Virginia Beach to be on the stage to present our data with Zahid Hawass, and Robert Baval and Joe Shore and John West and Ahmed Fayed and a couple of others. And at the last minute, apparently, um, uh, Hawass has backed out. He is not going to appear at the conference. Mm. I have proposed uh, Stan Tennant of the Meru Foundation, who has come up with some really remarkable connections now not only to our data, but also to the Egyptian time capsule model that we've alluded to on our previous shows and, and, and tonight. They have said that they have, are trying now to get Mark Lehner to replace Hawass. What I have proposed is they cut down my time so that we can add Stan to the mix, and I'll report in a future program if this is all going to take place. All right. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hi. Uh, yeah, uh, the reason why I, I've been kind of frightened by all this discussion is because of its coincidental nature to some of the things I've been uh, getting into, which uh, a guy named Dr. Carl Baugh, 
who is a religious guy, who used to be a paleontologist, has been espousing some of these same things that you have discovered uh, as fact, which is quite amazing. I think you should uh, try to get a hold of some of his uh, material. Um, if and you my want question, to fax me anything, our fax number is 201-271-1703. And our website Only one person can talk at a time. So yeah, I just, my question was, that planet that blew up, or is that uh, disintegrated? Uh, Potentially blew up. Well, it, it, this is a model. It's not a fact yet. It's supposed to be Omega, am I right? Well, I mean, you can name anything. I mean, anything. I mean, excuse me, Alpha. You can name a. anything, anything. All right. And and what, what is your question, caller? Planets have harmonic sounds. Actually, you can you can hear them in space. Uh, is that true? No. There. Look. The, there's a metaphor between sound and harmonics at the hyperdimensional level of the physics. There is a wave function associated with this this physics. So when you when in, in in New Age metaphysics, a lot of times sound is supplemented, it's substituted for real wave functions, which are at the level of the ether, yes, right? Right. But there's an equivalence. Uh, and the direction of, of your inquiry is in the right direction. Yeah, if you take a planet out, the tones of the rest of them will change. That makes sense. And it's that changing tone at the level of the etheric physical reality which ultimately results in planets flipping axes in an effort to bring themselves back in equilibrium. It's a, it's, it, you can see it in ripple tanks. You can see it in lots of lab demonstrations. At, at this level. No, that makes sense. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hi. Hello, uh, Mr. Hoagland. I'm interested in the issue of the timeline. You mentioned that when we changed from the Gregorian to the Julian calendar, that, that we was lost Julian to the Gregorian. Oh, sorry, yes, Julian to Gregorian. We lost some weeks. Yes. This equates into some months, years, mm -hmm. and that we are not 1997, but the year 2001. Roughly. Well, have you computed this actually, or do you know if anyone has? Yeah, there are people who have done it. I do not have access at the top of my head to that data, uh, but it's easily accessible on the web. Thank you. The beauty of the web. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Interesting. Wildcard line, you're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hi. Yeah, good uh, morning, Art. Uh, Mr. Hoagland, this is Jerry from Portland. Morning. Uh wanted to uh, just briefly comment, jeez, uh, you've been all over the place tonight. You've got a lot of facts and figures. I could barely follow you. Uh, and you have the... to get the tape and listen to it again carefully. Yep. Right. Right. I'm just kind of curious where we're going with all this. We're trying to figure it out. I don't know where we're going, all right? Remember, science is not a prescription. It's a process. When I started 15 years ago, I hadn't a clue I'd be sitting here tonight discussing this at the level that we're discussing it. I don't know what we're going to find out tomorrow. I have a meeting on the weekend re relating to Egypt. I have a clue as to what's going to happen there. The point is that if you get your process down, if you have your checks in, whatever comes at you, you know, you can handle because you've got a way of testing whether it's real or it's not real. But you got to have a process. Fair enough. All right. Thank you very much for the call. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hi. 
Uh, hi, Art. This is uh, Andy in Norman, Oklahoma, and I really enjoyed the program. I just wanted to ask briefly if you could touch on, while we still have a couple minutes left, about maybe his thoughts on the aspects of human evolution that may be coming into play because of this, and the quickening and the changing of the harmonic resonance of the hyperdimensional reality okay. and such. That's, that's an excellent question, and I think I've got a pretty good answer. If we're right, if this physics, in fact, is is part of our reality, is modulating our reality, mm-hmm. then as the as the as the phase relationship between the planets and the spin axes orient in this key geometry, you would get what art keeps calling the quickening, which is in fact an accelerating resonance to a resonance peak. This, in in turn, should have an effect on the biology of the planet, on the meteorology. That's why I call it hyperdimensional weather art, all right? Yes. It should have an effect on the geology. And most of revival should have an effect on the consciousness of people. And if you if you want a simple kind of rule of thumb, the good will get better and the bad will get worse. Social behavior. You will see more extremes. Right, that's right. But... There will also be an increase in awareness so that things that were only out there on the fringe, things you couldn't quite put into a pattern, will suddenly snap into place and you'll say, aha, so that's what that means. And dreams, of course, which is when we release our conscious hold on the world and the associative connections, the unfiltered process of linking things is, is most available to us should get better, and if you pay attention to your dreams, you'll be able to problem-solve at that transition between dreaming much more easily than you have before. And I can't believe I'm talking this way. This is not me. This is the physics. This is the prediction of the model, and there's all kinds of real-world clues, which I could spend a whole program going through the physical observations of the U.S. Geological Survey and all the others, some of which you have on your website. Well, if I had to sum up this program, I'd say, I'd call it Richard Hoagland meets the metaphysical. (laughs) East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hello. How you doing? Richard, I'm very aware that in about six years they're going to retire the uh, space shuttle fleet and got a new line of spacecraft. Uh, I've seen pictures of it. It kind of looks like the shuttle mixed in with a little bit of a Aurora type of craft. Yeah, and you, you know, know what the code number, number is? Huh? You know what the code number for it is? No, I'm not sure. X33. Yep. I've got a photograph of it on my website. Did you know that, Richard? You know what the highest degree of masonry is? <laughs> well, 33. Exactly. Do you know where Pathfinder is landing on Mars in July? Art. Um, the 33rd latitude? No, 19.5. Look, I rest my case. It's all over but the shouting. Look, please, folks, go to these old Navy stores and ask to find out what's going on. Oh, I can't wait to see the results of this one. And believe me, if enough of you do it, such shockwaves will be sent to the core of what's going on that it will open up the door for us to walk in and get some real answers. Either that or the old Navy chain will come to me and advertise. <laughs> West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard Seoklin. Hello. You're laughing, Art. I'm laughing because it, it, that was... It's going funny. to work. All right, caller. I'm kind of curious. How does the store tie in with all of this? Well, we just explained that. There, there's some kind of connection point for the old Navy 
which is when the water covered the planet from a previous time. About right, Richard? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And the Navy guys were the ones that survived and preserved this core of civilization to rebuild in the next cycle. Now, that does not mean that every employee of the old Navy stores knows what's going on. All it takes is one person to be the contact point. And what you've done quietly, in other words, look, you've seen enough John Wayne movies to know that when the balloon goes up, you get the phone call and you report in. I mean, what are you expecting best case to occur? You walk in... You say you're there for the meeting. There'll be a lot of bewildered people. And, and I mean, but there'll also be somebody that that after the fourth or fifth or tenth person comes in and you know says where's the meeting and holds up a tetrahedron or a hyperdimensional you know equilateral triangle, they begin to realize that they've been found out and they then do something. And they do, don't do it to you; they do it behind the scenes. But what it will do is result in phone calls or faxes or something to us because we have back channels into certain people that I can't divulge right now. And this is the thing you can do, you, the American people, to help us get the kind of meetings we need to get to the next level of this. And if nothing's going on, nothing will happen. You can just get a nice plaid shirt for sixteen fifty. <laughs> and I might get a sponsor. I mean, I, I've got to look at the positive side of this. Um, now, is it possible that somebody will walk in and say, I'm here for the meeting, and they'll be led to some back room and seated where they probably ought to not be? Is that what you... Look, look it, it, anything is possible. And what we want, of course, folks, is for you to tell us what happens. All right, report back. Facts are, facts me. And if enough of you do it, it's numbers here that count, because if they realize the jig is up, we figured it out. I mean, for God's sake, the whole, you know, Yeltsin-Clinton summit was delayed so this timing takes place at the right time. And he's coming back on the 21st. Yep. It's one day there and back. What the, what the hell of a kind of summit is that to decide the fate of Europe and the expansion of NATO? You're right. of, you are right about that. And, I, I, you know, Yeltsin is really pissed about our expansion of NATO. And he's taken a pretty hard line. Yeah. And this is bound to be a rough summit. And this is going to be a touch and go. I I do agree with that. I really do agree. This is a critical, critical summit. And the president said, I must go That's to Helsinki. Right. Like any other time, he would have put it off. Yep. But, but no way. I've got to go to Helsinki. So that much I know to be true. Uh, what's going to happen to all the old Navy stores later? <laughs> I have no idea about that. Come on, Art. Go find an old Navy store and tell me what happens. We don't have them in Peru. Yes, you do. I don't. Well, maybe. Call that number. It'll tell you the nearest one. Nearest one to Perum, Nevada, huh? Yep. All right, Richard. Uh, jigs up, to use an old Navy term. Uh, show's over and all that stuff, so say goodnight, Cosmos. Oh, no, no, no. I'll say steady as she goes. <laughs> Oh, at the helm again before you know it. Um, no more Navy metaphors. Good night, Richard. Good night, Art. From the high desert. Good night, Cosmos. Good night.